0: everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal. If you can believe it, the show we do. <laughs> what talk is this? About, it's the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these, which has been a while, and it's yeah. been a while. It's been a while uh, at like peak movie cramming time, so we've yeah. got a lot to cover. So um, we are going to jump in right after we tell you. About these sponsors.
1: This sponsor, Tyler Smith here. Uh, this episode, <laughs> yeah, I'm David. Yeah, this, uh, this movie. No, <laughs> yeah, I know. This movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, uh, Toronto International Film Festival, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. So, along with uh, uh, the films, they also have a blog featuring editorials and interviews. And uh, this week, they have a blog that tells you where you can find uh, all of these short films, animated, uh, live action documentary, whatever, uh, that have been shortlisted for this year's Oscars, where you can find those online for free. Um, and so, they're, that's, that's how committed MiniFlix is. Uh, they're willing to say, hey, wherever you can find it, even if it's not on our platform. Go find them. All oh, right. So, yeah. it's I something like that. I know. I kind of respect that. And so uh, so you can find that. Um, you can check out that article and other articles, and then you can always uh, uh, sign up for Miniflix and check out the short films that they have to offer. So just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. So, okay. What is going on over there? Nothing. Do you need a pen? No, oh, no I you have, have a pen. pen. Okay. No, uh, this is... Uh... Well, I would tell you what, while you're doing that, uh, yeah. I did want to let everybody know, um, this, they're not a sponsor. There's just a thing that I uh, was doing. So, um, uh, a couple months ago I was working on a, uh, a, a video series, uh, called faith in filmmaking, which is currently, uh, available at faith life TV. Faith life TV is a streaming service, uh, that is Christian based, but, uh, you know, so that, that might not be for everybody, but if you're interested in watching this, uh, this series of mine in which I just talk about film history and certain film theory, uh, elements, and I interview a couple people, uh, you can go to faith life TV and you can sign up for the first two weeks for free. And then once you watch it, you can, uh, you know, cancel it. It sounds very exciting. I, you know what? Yeah. I'll say this, uh, when I was doing it, I mean, it just felt, it felt like I was, you know editing my Jurassic world thing. But then once I saw it pop uh, pop up on the platform yesterday or two days ago, um, I, uh, it felt very strange to like seem yeah, to see my picture of you there. Oh, thank you. Uh, so yeah, to like see me on my own Apple TV is very strange. Oh yeah. Um, and then as I was, uh, and then I, I, turned it on to see if it worked and i noticed a couple of things i noticed that they changed my opening uh, credits but whatever um cuz they were too long it happens <coughs> and so uh but nonetheless as i was watching it i was actually quite proud um i'm i am not an editor uh, I'm not a trained editor at all, um, but I think that these are put together pretty well. I'm I'm happy that my I'm I'm proud to have my name uh, on them. And so, uh, listeners, if you're interested, uh, go to FaithLife TV and sign up for the uh, the free two weeks. I will say this: uh, if you're a listener of Battleship Pretension. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. Like this is all very introductory educational stuff, but there are some good interviews. I have an interview with my friend, Tyler Stracely who wrote an episode of uh, the good place uh, last year. Uh, And my other friend, Reed lackey who is uh, a podcaster himself. And so, yeah, there's, there's some good stuff on there. I'm really proud of it. So you can, you can check that out.
0: Um, <laughs> you are technically kind of a trained editor. You took editing 101 in Underground. That's undergrad, true. <laughs> that's true. High. Yeah. You edited that uh, thing about the uh, reclusive jazz hound who meets the woman across the oh, street. Oh, that's did right. Do you remember that? <laughs> and we all edited that same short film. Yeah. Oh, there was that one, and then there was also Motorcycles and Mayhem was the other one. Did you do that one? I don't think I did that one. Okay, that was like a biker gang love story, I think. I don't remember. I did, yeah, I didn't do that one. Um, but yeah, I did definitely uh, yeah, it was a short film that someone at our school Mm on the college Chicago had made and then they broke it down into just shots and everyone has to edit. Yeah. In editing one-on-one, everyone has to edit this film based on the, the, it's not even really the raw footage. They do like some shot
1: selection. You only have like, right. You have maybe in some cases you had two different takes, but mostly you had like one take. You mostly just had the one and you could cut it however you wanted. And, uh, you know, it was silent. So it was really just about like how you're cutting in, putting music on it and that right. sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was that. And then let's not forget uh, Luxury on a Leash, the documentary that you helped me with about. Uh, Did I help you? Yeah, I went to Milwaukee with you. <laughs> that was a help, honestly. Um, but yeah, and you gave me some, you know, gave me somebody to talk to uh, on the way back. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it was about the the inventor of the Meeky breed and the very sordid uh, underbelly of uh, dog breeding, which feels like. <laughs> there's, there's probably like a Christopher guest movie in there somewhere yeah. or maybe some kind of Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, <laughs> hellscape. But anyway, uh, okay. So we got stuff to get to. Yeah. Let's just
0: start talking mm-hmm. movies Okay, and we're going to get to, you know, we'll get big, to all your favorites. We're going to get to the big award stuff that I've been catching up on mm-hmm. award season or end of year type movies, uh, or, you know, prestige end of year type movies. We're going to start yeah. with, um, Uh, it's on the sort of geekier side of things, (laughs) not a judgment. Some of these movies are very good, including James Wan's Aquaman. Okay. Um, which have you seen it yet?
1: No. Uh,
0: it's a lot of fun. Okay. It is. It's, I mean, it's also very long. Mm -hmm. Like many of these movies are and some stuff. Uh, you know, when it gets into the, like, um, according to the ancient
1: uh, the mythology of, uh, and stuff. That, yeah. yeah
0: that's, I'm like, all right. Um, <laughs> but when it like, it's absolutely beautiful. It really does. It feels like James Wan was like, you're going to give me how much money? Yeah. And then I'm going to have as much fun with it as possible. Yeah. It's just a, a huge, gorgeous, very, very colorful uh, movie, which is definitely within the DC extended universe. A lot of the movies have been dinged for being, sort of desaturated, dis- dis- disaturated and that sort of,
1: uh, and just generally uh, uh, displeasing visually like <laughs> dour and not even, it, just like the color palette of justice league. Yeah. I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating vomit. It just looks huh. like vomit. Like they'll have like this weird red sky in the background and it's, I don't know. It's a uh, very strange, um,
0: but even one Woman, in which I liked <laughs> and was a very sort of emotional thing. Yeah. Movie has a, you know, 1910s world war (laughs) one color palette this movie is so bright and so uh so much so much fun to the like up to the point of potentially being garish which i don't think is necessarily a bad thing for the type of movie you're you're making an aquaman movie yeah have fun have at it um it is also a um and this is something that's going to come up this episode's going to be very long so maybe in a couple of hours i might be saying something else like this again (laughs) oh boy but um out tomb raiders tomb raider OK, because there's an extended sequence in the desert, mm-hmm. an ocean of sand, yep. um, which is what they say in the movie. I have no doubt um, in which they're like literally like <coughs> tomb raiding and like doing the Indiana Jones type of like finding ancient booby traps and like yeah. putting puzzles together and d- deciphering clues. Yeah. Uh,
1: it was better than this year's or sorry, 2019 last year's. Tomb Raider. Um, when you when you hear Aquaman, you think yes, but I want an extended desert scene as well.
0: I, well, when the movie's two and a half hours long, you got you got time. You know,
1: <laughs> did they start with the <laughs> runtime and work backwards? Or? <laughs>
0: Maybe, um, but I, I, I can't really complain. It, there's also uh, I should move on. I should, there's there are specific um, references to eighties and early nineties action movies. Okay, like the. The opening sequence is very much a sort of under siege slash die hard on the submarine type mm-hmm. of thing where he like literally enters <coughs> to slow mo and steam and like has a one liner ready on the yeah. permission to come aboard. And, like, it's like <laughs> it's intentionally kind of cheesy. And then there is also a v- even more specific point break reference. Oh, okay. Um, which includes. Jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, Yeah. Um, and uh, I was giddy about that. So let's move on. Um, speaking of giddy, and speaking of superheroes, I saw Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, this is one of mine as well. Okay, so we've we've both yes. seen this. I I really, I really had a blast. I I, I feel like I don't want to. I don't want. It's always my intention or my. It always seems to be my impulse to start negative, start with what I don't like. So I want to make it clear. I really, really love this movie. Yeah. I do feel like some of the conversation around the movie is, uh, gilding Lily is over, overselling things a little bit.
1: Well, something that you and I have, have started talking about in the last few years is doing what we do. And admittedly you do more of it than I do. Like just seeing a lot of movies so that you can review them. You write more than I do and you see more than I do. But you know when you when you start to amp up the the stuff that you've seen, anything, even if it's similar in a like, even if there's like a ninety percent overlap with other stuff in that genre, if there's that ten percent that feels notably different, uh, for some people, that's so refreshing that they will speak a bit hyperbolically about that ten percent. Right. Yeah. And Spider Man into the Spider Verses is there's a lot it has a lot going for it i really really like it um it's inherently unconventional as far as the type of story it's telling but within that the beats that are hit and the and the themes that are explored are not that new and not that different and that's okay that's not a crime
0: especially when it's done well yeah this is you know and I, i i do feel like maybe there's sometimes there's just an impulse to to um to, to to what's the word I'm looking for? To christen something as new, yeah, because you liked it. Where because it's harder to make the case for, and this is why certain things, certain genres like romantic comedy, mm-hmm. tend to get overlooked is because they are very formulaic. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. You can yeah, you can hit the formula and do it right. And I think I think Into the Spider Verse does definitely. I, I think yeah. it really does. It does a good job with its main character there are a lot of spider people in this movie right and i would say outside of miles morales and peter b parker yeah they're not that well developed even peter b parker is kind of you can kind of sum him up in a log line uh yeah but,
1: but he, he but, definitely is more developed than the others than the other yeah certainly yeah.
0: more than than spider gwen or or spider ham or yeah spider-man noir voiced mm. by Nicolas cage <laughs> delightfully
1: yes <laughs> yeah uh, we don't pick the ballroom. We just dance. Such <laughs> <laughs> a great line. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing is like when you have that, when you've chosen to write that character that way, how do you not decide, you know what? He's our lead now. That's what we're doing. Right, yeah. I want to write all of this dialogue. Um, and you've got what?
0: Liam Schreiber is, uh, as Kingpin, is Kingpin. Great. He, yeah. Good, good voice. Catherine Han right as, uh,
1: as Doc Ock. yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah. So uh, and visually, just so fascinating. You told me yeah. before I saw it. You you mentioned like some of the choices that they had, uh, some of the choices that they made as far as like the background. And I definitely see, understand people's complaint about it, but I did uh, adore it. I thought I, it was so interesting.
0: I like it. Did it kind of played hell with my eyes a little bit? Oh, sure. I have To say because um, okay. the background does this thing. The sort of like. Um, from what i've read it was intentionally meant to 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 reference like 60s comic books where the color like print cuz you know they're in yeah. three colors like a like a film separation like film separates are and if they weren't lined up you'd get like red or blue like sort of ghosting around yeah. some, around objects or around people and it does it does that with the backgrounds not with the yeah. foregrounds uh, and it is cool but it also it I, my my eyes
1: kept feeling like it, they wanted to put 3D glasses on, like old so old school stereo. 3D. It does feel that that yeah. way a little bit, but I also feel like, strangely enough, I think it's more than just a reference. I and, and I think it actually fits with the type of story they're telling, which is like realities are just off kilter now. Like something is wrong. Not yeah. that Not that they're doing like a before and after. Like it always looks like that, but it just it's like a, just a visual cue just to let you know that yeah, this isn't. This isn't going to be
0: straightforward. I saw it as, and I think I mentioned this in my review as sort of, uh, putting us in the headspace of miles and his ambivalence, about his place in the world, you know, he's torn between, um, this fancy school he goes to and his sort of, uh, old school neighborhood. He's his dad's a cop. His Mm -hmm. other father figure is a criminal, you know, he's torn in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I saw it as being about that. I'll say one thing about, the, and this is where I think the movie should get the credit it deserves is is visually. Yeah. And yet, I had a coworker who was like, "It looked cheap and ugly." That's what he said. And I feel like, I wonder if are we so used to theatrical animated movies all kind of looking the same
1: that oh, when something changes it looks ugly to someone yeah i mean i i know some people people that i trust actually that um had a big problem with like fantastic mr fox because they said it looked ugly visually as opposed to other not that there are many other stop motion films out there but like the works of you know aardman or or whatever tim burton has done or, or the or, various um, other what's the the studio that does the uh like kubo and yeah and uh Leica? like that's it yeah. yeah uh and they say, and they say, like, oh yeah, it's just so so ugly and gross, and it's just like I, I, I first off, I think it's gorgeous yeah. from a vi- as far as color palette and such, but um, but yeah, it could it could be that it could be that people are very used to like the nice smooth lines of of computer animated films, and this yeah. is not a movie that is interested in being that. Yeah, but I um, do think it's beautiful. Yeah, and the action is great. Uh-huh. Like the character of the Prowler, like everything surrounding that character oh, right. is. Tremendous fun and yeah, I really I really like the movie
0: Uh, All right, moving on to a movie I really, really didn't like (laughs) And it's been almost a month now I'm not going to have that much to say about Mortal Engines (laughs) Yeah (laughs) Because everyone else has already forgotten that it even happened um, Except For the fact that it I mean, it's not as long as Aquaman But it felt twice as long It just felt like there's no differentiation from, From Place to place It's sort of self-conscious world building is uh, so uninspired. It's visually uninspired, hmm. which, and I, I want to, I'm talking about it in terms of mise-en-scene and color palette and framing, the visual effects are obviously very, very expensive yeah. and well done work, but they don't always, they're not always presented well, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I don't want to sound like I'm, cause a lot of people have talked about how great the visual effects are. I agree. They're really well done, but In service of what? Yeah. Uh, I don't have... Honestly, I've
1: forgotten so much about the movie that I don't have much to say about it. All right. Saving some time. That's exciting.
0: What did you see next?
1: Oh, um, that's right. I forgot. Uh, So I saw The Sisters Brothers. Okay. I have seen this. Which I liked but didn't love. Um, I don't know what I expected. I think I expected something a bit quirkier, which is weird to say because the film is quite quirky. But I think I thought... You know, I mean, the minute the movie is there, I should leave my expectations at the door, but I think I expected it to be tonally a little bit more comedic, and there are moments of humor, undoubtedly. I wonder
0: if I gave you that impression, because I had the opposite of experience. The the trailer gave me the impression as well. Because I went in, (coughs) and I didn't watch the trailer, I went in knowing, oh, it's Jacques Odillard who made (coughs) Rust and Bone,
1: not exactly a quirky movie, so the movie ended up being much funnier and quirkier than I expected it to be. Yeah, and... And there is that, but yeah, more than anything, it's uh, the quirk comes from the characters themselves, and I think the actors are not interested in creating caricatures. I think they are making fully developed characters, and I think, um, I think, I, I think all the actors are doing great work. I think Joaquin Phoenix as this guy who is just very self-destructive and and does not really plan ahead in life, um, and is just. I both. I mean, both the brothers are just psychopaths i mean just the stuff that they the the casualness casualness with which they kill Mm -hmm. um is disturbing i think i think it's a very in many ways i think it's a very necessary western uh because you know we've seen westerns that are extremely violent and bloody but the way in which uh these characters kill yes it is their job and that's you know that's that's understandable but the way in which they do it like anybody else would do their job um the way somebody right. would just like flip a burger at uh-huh. uh, McDonald's or something you're like wow that's like the stuff that they've had to shut off yeah. inside themselves and you see the one struggling with it and the other one not and yeah. there and i think visually it's it's really beautiful i think that first shot of like the far away barn and you see uh yeah uh, far away uh like farmhouse um there's some interesting choices made um in the end i didn't think the film was that satisfying but i was glad i saw it i think
0: yeah I, that is a nice shot you're talking about but also mm-hmm. i do feel like and i think i said this back on the last movie journal or the one before uh, whenever i saw it um that Jackie Odeo is kind of cheating out of having to make an action movie a lot of the times yeah. by by doing those distant (laughs) shots or just like doing things in darkness. You know, I I feel like there's, there's these things that should be big shootouts that are mostly like take place off screen. And sometimes people do, you know, um, movies like the way of the gun or, um, in some ways, no country for old men later in the movie as it moves on. um, (laughs) Or even the more recent, you were never really here. Like it feels like cutting away from the action is a is a is a choice. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it did it does feel like he's kind of cheating a little bit.
1: To me. I, I guess that's but, true. Uh, when I think of like their their fight with the mountain men looking guys, <laughs> I remember thinking that was fairly well executed. It's no. Um, Unforgiven or even something like Appaloosa which I thought had some really interesting fight scenes yeah not um, seen
0: that in a while that's a good one
1: yeah but uh, uh, but yeah I yeah. was glad I saw
0: it uh, I do, you reminded me of a funny line though towards the end of the movie when John C. is he's like how long has it been since someone tried to kill us yeah. he's like a few days does that seem odd to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on uh, to Josie Rourke's *Mary Queen of Scots*. Okay. Uh, which again, talk about expectations. I went in, my expectations not that high. I haven't heard that many great things about the movie. It seemed like it was a build-up to award season. This was supposed to be one of the movies, and it hasn't been. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I I really enjoyed it. It really has to do with it's got beautiful cinematography, great costumes. Uh, great makeup. And most importantly, you've got Sir Ronan and Margot Robbie just, yeah, ju- just, uh, um, tearing the, tearing the walls down with how, with how good they yeah. are. Um, you've also got some other, I usually like David Tennant as an actor, hmm. but, um, I think part of the reason I'd like him is because he can be a ham. Yeah. And I feel like this is a movie that no one else is really being a ham in uh, this movie. And so he's, He's the, um, he's one of the pretty much all, like, part of the, not, maybe joke is the wrong word, but part of the idea of the movie is movies, two women leaders who are at odds only because all of the men that advise them keep putting them at odds. They don't yeah. really want to fight. And so, to some extent, all of the, uh, major male characters are villains, but, um, David Tennant specifically is the, Scotsman, who is, uh, an initially an advisor to Mary, but because of his own greed and also his own misogyny, he yeah. uh, ends up leading sort of the faction against her, but he's just like big, like rolling eyes. And he, he's acting yeah. like he's like the villain in an earnest movie. <laughs> like he's just, <laughs> it's just a really big performance with a great, big bushy beard. Um, anyway, I, I, once again, I've done, I've, one tiny thing that bothered me about the movie I ended up spending way too much time on. Yeah. When did it become so negative? I used to
1: try not to do that. Um, do you think but, the issue is that it came out the same year as The Favorite, and The Favorite just is uh, such an unconventional type of th- of this, an unconventional version of this type of film that one of them looks, Yeah, that that's I what mean, everyone's going to focus on?
0: I guess, I don't know. It depends on... That's a really interesting question because I understand why from a contemporary viewpoint someone looking at the billboards for two, these two movies would yeah. see them as similar. They both have to do with English royalty. But we're talking about a difference of hundreds of years. Like, yeah. To me, like... I, but I do think there is a certain point where, like, you've got like, any sort of pre-19th century period piece people all sort of put into one, like... Uh, you know, yeah. or really just... Maybe just
1: and and female-led that's the other thing period film having to do with royal royalty female-led when i uh was in chicago for thanksgiving and i went to the landmark as you know uh they've not changed this since we lived there they will show the same five trailers for every movie that you see and Uh i saw three movies while i was there Uh and they show them all in the same order so they showed mary queen of Scots. And then the favorite. And so literally, I'm watching one trailer right after another. And even though Mar- like Mary Queen of Scots looked like a really interesting movie, then the then the favorite trailer comes up and it's just like, well, if I have to choose one, which yeah. I don't. Yeah, you don't. But, but like, if I have to, I would choose this
0: one. And I agree. I would you know? having seen them both, I would <clears throat> recommend the favorite over Mary Queen of Scots. But if you like this kind of movie, which I do, because I was talking with uh Battleship Pretension editor at large, uh, Scott and I, who Mm -hmm. did not like Mary Queen of Scots, and he said part of it is that he is just immediately (coughs) turned off by what he called throne drama, which is actually something that I tend to be really into. Yeah. Like like, medieval or Renaissance like political intrigue? Are you kidding me? Oh, Elizabeth? I love yeah. Yeah, put it right in my veins. I love it. Um, All right. All right, and then again... movie that I went into cautiously okay, and I'm still cautious about, even though I liked it a lot is Clint Eastwood's the mule. Oh, have okay. you seen
1: it yet? No, not yet.
0: I think you'll like it. I think it's, I think it's very good. I also think that a lot of the charges against it in terms of, I, I think you, you could really have a really interesting conversation here among people who have both seen the movie mm-hmm. about, uh, um, whether is the movie racist or is the character racist? And if the, is the movie aware of the characters racist and is it actually commenting on that? To me, I, I, I don't know. Like the movie starts with him. He, uh, playing a, 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 not a florist, a guy who grows flowers and sells oh, okay. them two florists. I'm not sure what you would mm. call that job. Um and his employees are, are Latino and he the first thing out of the out of his mouth is a racist joke. Okay. To, which they all laugh at because they're all friends. And I've known friends like that oh, yeah, yeah. who make that kind of joke. And I but I also don't know like I also have to be aware that I'm coming from the white like point of view, you know? Yeah. Maybe those that joke maybe you know, maybe that character in real life would be pretending to laugh at the joke because his boss is the one. It's his boss. It, that you know, yeah, and that, that changes so, it. I can't. I, I really don't want to try to sidestep the race issues. I will just mention. I think. The, I think the movie is aware of them. I don't know that that means it's doing it right because from I'm coming from just a white guy point of view. Mm. I I don't have, but to me it it didn't rub me too far the wrong way to keep me from enjoying what i think is actually a really interesting movie (coughs) about um you could call it you could call it a kind of neo-noir movie Hmm. um in the sense that it's a regular guy with maybe who's maybe willing to cut some corners and in doing so ends up getting caught up in a criminal lifestyle that's a pretty standard noir yeah you know he's a generally decent guy with some flaws and one of those flaws is that he can't say no to an easy few thousand bucks for driving uh, uh, drugs across the country. Um, So it it is kind of a noir and I think the movie is really aware of sort of the mythicism of the myth of the American West and of the great American or you know the as Tony Soprano would say, the Gary Cooper strong, silent type, yeah. you know, and showing him as like, yeah, that's what he is. But also his life's a mess because he was not a good husband or father. Yeah. Um, he drinks too much and spends too freely. And yeah, uh, now he's at the end of his life and doesn't really have anything to show for anything. So I think the movie is intentionally sort of undercutting, uh, the, the myth making of this right. type of movie. And I think I think some people aren't seeing it that way. Um, and they're well, of course, they're uh, fine with seeing it. <laughs> I'm fine with the people seeing it. I want to have the conversations with yeah. the people who see things uh, differently. But um, I also think Clint was great. It's his first role since Trouble with the Curve, which I didn't see. Yeah. Um, and the first time directing himself
1: since Grand Torino, which, which he said was going to be the last time.
0: Oh, okay. At the well, time. this is the same screenwriter as Gran Torino, and I will say you can tell in that there are some groaners. In this I have no doubt. That I wish... I really... There are multiple times in watching the movie when I was like, oh, just... If you'd let me into the editing room. This movie's so good. Yeah. Do you really have to have that stupid... Line that stupid on the nose yeah. line there. There's a there's a couple of those. There's also a part when he goes to a drug dealer's party and the camera is way too interested in these women's asses. There's like a whole long sequence nice. of like women in bikinis dancing around a yeah. pool and it's like, all right, I, like I get it,
1: asses. You almost feel like Clint Eastwood saying like, I'm old, I'm not dead.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I felt like there was something else I was going to say there, but I don't remember what. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great. So Clint Eastwood's great. Also Diane Weiss is great as always. Of course. And Bradley Cooper is awesome. Yeah. uh, In the movie, Michael Pena is um, playing the Michael Pena role, uh, kind of comic relief, but um, he's also playing the, to address the racism charges, the one non-criminal Latino in the movie. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, I guess not counting the two. Employees you see at the beginning that he jokes with. Anyway, I've gone on too long, but uh, I found The Mule very interesting and very good. Let's move on to a movie that I found very interesting and unfortunately not very good. Okay. And that's Robert Zemeckis' Welcome to Marwan. Okay. Excuse me. Welcome to Marwan. You haven't seen it? No. I I was really interested until the reviews
1: came out. But I I do
0: think it's worth, this movie is worth people's time. Um, Not everyone. If you're not willing to give it your time, then you you, you shouldn't, but this is the thing that happens with so many Robert Zemeckis movies for me, like with flight, um, to some parts of Forrest Gump to some extent with Castaway, which I mostly like, I, I feel like he goes up to a certain point of exploring these really interesting personal things. Yeah. And then he always, by the end turns a corner into what I think turns his movies more into commodities than works of art. In that he just gives the audience what he thinks they want. Yeah. So, with Malcolm, welcome to Marwin, which is based on a documentary called Marwin Call um, about a, a, a man who was beaten. He was jumped and beaten so severely that he's lost most of his memory, and he now has mental health issues and post traumatic stress. And he, his coping method is that he spends his time building this, this sort of like uh, one sixth model Belgian town set during World War Two, in which a avatar of him interacts with all these mm-hmm. women uh, and then fights Nazis and then he takes pictures of them and it's it's really cool. And and so once when, when you go into his fantasies, that's Robert Zemeckis is going back to the motion capture. Uh that's it's fully motion capture. Mm-hmm. But not fully motion there actually are I, I do think they shot for backgrounds like real close ups of like close to the ground blades of grass. So you've got these motion capture oh, things neat. walking around on what is I I'm pretty sure is just a real uh, you know uh, a real background you know, yeah. a real a real space um but i think the movie gets into some really interesting stuff obviously in terms you know robert zemeckis likes motion capture in the same way that mark hogan camp the character likes to play with these yeah th- there's clearly like a kinship there <laughs> it also gets very much into his sexuality and his issues of Within this world he controls women. In the other world, or in the real world, all the women who help all the people who help him are women. In fact, mm-hmm. the women in the in Marwin are based on yeah. each one of them is a correlation um with one example, uh, or with one exception, um, to a woman in the real world. Uh and I think Argemack is very much sort of looking at his you know, he seems to love these women, but within this world, he just wants to control them in the other world and in the real world. I keep saying as if one's real and one's not, but I think of them as just two separate worlds in the real world. He lets them control him, but also in a way that is kind of patronizing to them. He puts them on pedestals in a a way. Um, And uh, I think you could uh, sort of question whether, the movie seems to be pointing out like, is this kind of the way that he views women? It is misogynistic, but because he's the opposite of a macho alpha guy, right? Does that suddenly make it okay or more palatable? Is women more willing to put up with the stereotyping and the reducing and the, you know, very limited, uh, roles of, you know, gender roles of like, you're the, 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 the helper you're here to help me. Right. Like, is that, uh, <laughs> Is that that far different from the, you know, stereotype of go make, you know, go back to the kitchen or whatever? Yeah. Um,
1: is it essentially doing the same thing? There's a lot of interesting. Is this situation where you say, like, oh, Asians are good at math? Like, that's <laughs> positive, which is a positive yeah. thing, but it's still, yeah. Yeah. Uh, reductive. Is, um, is, yeah.
0: And so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Welcome Tomorrow. Unfortunately, the third act is just, I think, this Robert Zemeckis bullshit, like, crowd-pleasing stuff and simple, simple metaphors that aren't even really about the things that I'm talking about. It becomes about this recovery journey. Um, that is like, that's not what was interesting. (laughs) Like being in Mark Hogan's Hogan camp's headspace was interesting. I didn't need this manufactured catharsis of him, like realizing, Oh, this, what this represents, which is like the movie made obvious two hours ago. Um, I really,
1: like so many Robert Zemeckis movies, I want to like it, and I am frustrated by the it's, end of it. It's why I really love Castaway is that it doesn't do the crowd pleasing thing. Like what the crowd wants is for Tom Hanks to come back and get and go oh, back yeah, into his true. his yeah. life, and it actually starts to give us that only for the characters to say this is no longer feasible. Yeah. And I think that's so much more satisfying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Zemeckis is one of those people. I know we don't, we have to move on, but like um, <clears throat> he's one of those people that when I see a movie of his and I, it, it, this is going to sound more negative than I mean it. I want to say, Robert, why do you make movies? (laughs) Like what attracts you to them? Clearly technology is something you're fascinated with, but from a storytelling, is it just that? Or like, do you see stories as a way to experiment, with technology or do you use technology to bring stuff out of these stories? Because it doesn't play like that. You don't seem that interested in the stories themselves, or maybe he's only interested on the surface and maybe one, one layer down, uh, one level down and that's it.
0: See, I I think it's more complicated. I think he is interested, but I think he has a, I think he has something that kicks in that says, "No, I have to, I have to be the populist." Yeah. So I I do I mean I do think he's capable of making really interesting stuff and really beautiful stuff. It's not you know even when he's not doing the motion capture thing. I know this movie, no one seemed to like it that much, but Allied, I thought was, I think I put it as my most underrated film of I the think, year. I think you did, Was yeah. that 2016? Is that when that was? Yes. Um, uh, <coughs> Allied is great, and I would put it in my top three Zemeckis movies, probably. Who uh, hmm. Famed Roger Rabbit is definitely number one. Oh, yeah. Um, and then maybe Cast Away, but then maybe Allied, then Cast Away. I also really like What Lies Beneath, I think. I didn't oh, like yeah. it when, I was, when it first came out. Cause I think some of the like Hitchcockian throwback stuff seemed corny to me, but I think I would probably like that a lot more now.
1: Yeah. I think I probably would too. I liked it at the time and then I kind of turned on it and I yeah. think I probably would come back to it. Um, yeah, I'd probably like it in the same way that I really like Martin
0: Scorsese's Cape fear, which also, uh, is kind of corny. Or, or hit but shutter I, Island. Um, yeah, shutter Island is, I don't know
1: it's troublesome but uh, let's move on what did you see next okay um first off i will say that uh i feel i should apologize um you may have uh, been hearing me cough i'm getting over a cold uh i'm trying not to cough on mic and i'm trying not to cough too loudly so i'm sorry if that bothers anybody um so this uh, of you. this was uh hey you no know. it is i just, i wouldn't have, <coughs> i wouldn't have cared <laughs> so uh so this is a rewatch and it's a movie I've it's my third time seeing it. It is Avengers Infinity War which I got for Christmas. Uh yes, I realize I sound like a child when I say that. Um but uh <clears throat> man, I stand by this movie. Uh and I just I cannot when I think of how much I did not care for Captain America Civil War from an action standpoint, from a, a storytelling standpoint, uh you know, that's one where there's the big, it's not the final battle, but it's, it's the big battle where like the, the Avengers are fighting each other and the way they pair off, it's like they agreed to it ahead of time. Like, all right, you fly, I fly, obviously we should fight each other. Right. Um, and so it all just seemed so manufactured and it just seemed like everybody was pulling their punches, which makes sense in the context of the film, but it also means that there's not, I, I feel like the stakes are pretty low. Um, and there's none of that there's none of that with with infinity war like the the villains that they're fighting, not merely Thanos himself but like ebony Ma and all that they're not pulling their punches and they are absolutely brutal like you, when you come to realize that the character of ebony Ma could himself have been the primary villain of one of these movies mm-hmm. um, and it's just i wouldn't I'm not sure if I'd say it's it's a flawless film, but those action sequences are just so. It is the it's the opposite of pulling punches. Like everybody is just going full steam ahead at all times, and everybody is, and they really seem to understand how to use these characters. Like the way Doctor Strange attacks somebody is very different than the mm-hmm. way Spider Man at- attacks somebody, and the uniqueness of that, and then combined with how they can work it together, is something that I loved about the first Avengers movie. Just this. Wonderful, swirling, virtuosic um, uh, action style that is just invigorating to me. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of character stuff in there that I like, um, and I do appreciate how much time we spend with Thanos uh, contemplating things and and all of that. But just as a spectacle, um, I I just it was everything. And again, it's my third time seeing it, so I already knew all this stuff. But given what, given that we spent 10 years leading up to it, I mean, everything about it could have just been a disappointment. How could it not be? Uh, well, they found a way for it not to be, at least from a spectacle standpoint. I think it uses CGI well. I, think, I don't think we, the characters get lost in the midst of it and boy they could they sure could have, and uh, it 's just a, a film that I continue to respond to um, it gives me that, that the feeling that I got when i saw when I saw spider man Two uh, mm-hmm. in two thousand and four mm-hmm. yeah. just You know, when when Spider-Man and Doc Ock are fighting on top of that train and then going up that building, you're like, this is this is so invigorating. This is what special effects are supposed to be. This is what superhero movies are supposed to be. And it's what I felt about uh, Infinity War. And it actually excites me all over again for uh, Avengers Endgame.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I should I should learn to be excited about movies again. Well, I even like I walked out of Infinity War for like. 20, 30 minutes being like, Oh, I can't believe I have to wait a year. And then the next morning I was like, "Eh, that's probably going to (laughs) suck. I don't know when I became that guy because I used to be the outbeat. Like if you go back to early days of the show, my philosophy was
1: like, I walk into every movie hoping it's going to be the best movie of the year. Yeah. Do you want to know what happened? 11 years (laughs) of watching movies and being like, Oh Yeah. Mm. yeah oh, thank you yeah like i i mean i i was looking because of because i grew up reading marvel comics and i remember the infinity gauntlet event um i was excited um just to see the cinematic version of that event and then a couple days and i was excited to go to the critic screening and stuff and then a couple days before i was like this could be terrible yeah (laughs) i really should lower my expectations uh but because of this and then i know that you can't judge a movie based on its trailer the trailer for Endgame is an interesting one i like the tone that they're striking it's a pure it's a purely mournful tone you don't see any action you only see characters dealing with the aftermath of of infinity war and uh so i'm excited for it but i also you know it's i think you and I are jaded, untrusting people, yeah. and we've been burned a lot. And I, so I'm excited for Endgame now. You get to the week before, I'll be like, "This could be terrible." Yeah. And and if it, and if it is, then I can say, "Oh, see, yeah, I wasn't that committed." Then when does it come out? April, around there. I don't know exactly because it, Captain it, Marvel needs to come out first, right? Man, I don't yeah, know Captain, when that Captain Marvel comes out in March in or March. is it February? I think February. I feel okay. like March is too early for
0: okay. Um, yeah, you're, I think you're right. It is February. So maybe April. Because Black Panther came out in February last year. But what I'm saying is, even if Endgame sucks, at that point it will be only a few weeks until John Wick 3. Right, okay. That'll be... that. That's John Wick movies I get excited about. So I'm sure that'll <laughs> yes, be... Yes, I know you do. Uh, all right, moving on to... Uh, oh, man, I really... Another movie that took me by surprise, uh, Car- uh, Karen Kusama's Destroyer. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Which is another... I think I gotta stop... I, I get too into this year because we do like the fantasy Oscar season or fantasy award season or whatever. I maybe am thinking too much about what's getting awards and not like, like with Mary Queen of Scots and especially with destroyer, which I really, really liked Mm -hmm. the fact that it like had a big Toronto premiere and then isn't really being talked about in the awards. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it maybe made me sort of forget about it a little bit. And then I threw it in and I was like, Holy shit, this movie is great. Uh, it's, I think it's, um, this, I don't mind being hyperbolic. I think it's the best crime film of twenty eighteen. Okay. Um and I am specifically saying that because I feel like you were never really here is overpraised. Okay. Uh and I feel like this is in some ways a very similar film in that it's about a um sort of uh it's a very dour movie about uh, a grim, nihilistic outlook of a person who's really been beaten down by life. Um uh but I I found this one to be a more exciting crime film and I think a more (coughs) interested character study. Um, Nicole Kidman is terrific, I think, as as is the rest of the cast, but it's really really her movie, but you've also got... uh, Do you know the story at all? I don't. So um, it starts... It's told non-linearly. There's sort of two stories going on. So it starts with Nicole Kidman as like a hungover detectives clearly a mess and she shows up at someone, another detective's crime crime scene and sees a dead body that has a certain tattoo. And she's like, she knows something. And so, uh, clearly this has to do with her past. And so the rest of the movie is a about her following going off the books, not an, an unofficial investigation, following up on this murder that is something from her past. And then the story from 15 years prior when she, as an LA detective and Sebastian Stan as an FBI agent Hmm. went undercover together into a bank robbery again, uh, shades of point break went undercover into a a bank robbery, uh, ring led by, um, uh, a character played by Toby Kebbell, you know him? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and also featuring Tatiana Maslany from orphan black. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you get the two things, uh, going side by side uh, and um, you're really learning about a lot about um, you know why why she is the person she is now so, so jaded and so burnt out but also is it that simple was there something where she was a good cop and then lost her innocence because of something or was she never really a good cop in fact the movie is um, really I think about the moral identity of the job of cop. Mm-hmm. Like it's on one hand. Yeah. She is a cop in the sense that she carries a badge like, yeah. <laughs> like Joe Friday. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that's what she puts on her tax return or whatever. But like, is she in her identity? Is she a cop? And was she ever,
1: I love, I, I love stuff like that yeah. in, in cop movies where, especially because because due to movies and tv if you're a cop or a doctor or a lawyer like you of course you would identify as your profession why wouldn't you right look at this amazing thing you're doing that so few other people have and now just imagine that you treat like i was talking about with the sisters brothers now imagine that you treat it like any other job like that oh yeah. that fascinates me i love yeah, it. yeah it's
0: uh, it's really good um <laughs> Next up, uh, I saw, um, Peter Segal's second act starring Jennifer Lopez and Leah Remini. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Dave Foley actually, uh, hey. a small role. Um, but also Tree Williams and Vanessa Hudgens. Um, uh, Dan Bukatinsky has a small role in it. Um, you would know if you saw him. Yeah. Um, maybe you wouldn't. He's mostly a TV guy. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh Larry Miller. Um, a bald Larry Miller is
1: looks like, I mean, like just fully, completely. Yeah. Okay. Like Mr. Clean. looks weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now that you say that, wouldn't it be amazing if Larry Miller just played the Kingpin?
0: Uh, just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, he's got the look in this movie. Uh, I don't know. I, I was actually very much looking forward to give it, I mean, think about it. This is the order I've watched these movies. In. yeah, so think about coming off a of destroyer. <laughs> I was very much looking forward to like this, um, <coughs> this sort of, uh, Coming of middle age comedy, um, and it's not the thing about it is it's not terrible. It, uh, our our friend, sort of friend of the show, Charlene e, is in it. Oh yeah, Charlene e has never been on the podcast.
1: No, she was. She did
0: she's a live on show. One of our live show, yeah. so she's kind of a kind of a friend of the show. Um, anyway, uh, there's a there's a lot that's good about it. it. Is it is funny. It's also for. I mean, it's a PG thirteen movie. Some of the jokes. Leah Remini's character who is the best part of the movie, by Mm. the way, uh, except filthy jokes. (laughs) Um, but there's just enough innuendo. There's a whole, Oh, I can't, I don't want to, I know no one's going to, our listeners, if they were going to see the movie, probably would have seen it already, but I still don't want to spoil. There's a Dave Foley joke. There's a whole set piece in which, because Jennifer Lopez's character, um, basically she, um, gets a job at a uh, kind of like, it's kind of a don't tell mom the babysitter dead type of sure. thing. She gets a job at a big corporation based on a completely fake, Lee Remini's son, who's like a computer whiz has made a completely fake <coughs> backstory for mm-hmm. her, like LinkedIn pages and Facebook pages and all history and a resume. And so one of the things he put on her resume is that when she was at her Ivy league college or whatever, she was the coxswain of the rowing team. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole part where there's like a corporate retreat where they're going to be rowing like one team against the other and she's going to be the coxswain. And it has a big, you know, kind of the the big payoff of the thing you kind of expect, you know, the boat flips over. They all get wet or whatever. But (laughs) There's a little tag at the end where Dave Foley has a joke that is an unintended on the character's part play on the word coxswain that is so funny that (laughs) you should just say it. Okay, so when he like looks at the fact that you know she led this team uh, to ruin to ruin and he goes cocks in my ass
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh, and the remedy has some filthy jokes there's some there's some good stuff the movie is overcrowded like the fact that I just told you that don't about mom the you dead dead type of premise that seems like a big premise right yeah, that's no, that, that seems a, like a movie there's a whole other thing <laughs> that I'm not even telling you <laughs> about the movie um, uh, plus there's the whole um, uh, romance start with part with Mila Ventimiglia plays her um Uh, her boyfriend that that she leaves because because she doesn't want to have kids and he does and they're getting older or whatever. There's there's way too much going on in in the movie, um, unfortunately, and it's wrapped up, I think, a little bit too, uh, way too neatly, actually, um, by the end. And I think, also, politically, I do feel like on the one hand, the movie starts as being, I think, very sympathetic to um the working class but then it also kind of ends with this this bootstrap type of message that i obviously don't care for because it's implying that oh, all she needed before was a little more a little elbow uh, grease. Yeah. Motivation yeah. whatever. the, yeah. the 40 years of her life that she spent been working way up to assistant manager of this, uh, big box store. That was nothing because all she had to do was <laughs> put her head to the and Now she's going to be a huge thing. That, yeah. that kind of stuff tends to bug me. Um, so it's not, probably not worth your time, but it does have a few killer jokes in it. I only gave you one of them. Uh, there's another Leah Remini one that I want to tell you off mic. Okay. Um, uh, and then this was just, Out of the blue, I went to the new art to see a movie, uh, an Italian movie called Sicilian Ghost Story, which is um, based on a true story, um, loosely based. The kernel of the movie is based on a true story is terrible about a mafia. I don't know. um, Not a mafia boss, but a mafia guy's Mm -hmm. uh, son, like teenage son, like 13 year old son who was kidnapped by rival mafia members kept um, kidnapped for over two years. And then eventually when they realized they weren't going to get what they wanted out of this guy, they strangled the boy and dissolved his body in acid and Oof. dumped the acid in the river. This is all that's all that part is true. Okay. Um, but this movie is mostly told from the point of view of a girl that goes to school with this boy who they're just sort of starting a first like puppy love type of romance when he gets kidnapped mm-hmm. and then it becomes about her over those two years her efforts to find him when mo- like a lot of the people are like don't care because they're like oh, that's what the mafia does there's nothing yeah. to do um, but also what I'm not telling you is that the movie is incredibly surreal and dreamy and is often leaving things questionable as to whether, whether what you're watching is real or not mm-hmm. There are, there are dream sequences that she has we get a lot of scenes with the boy in captivity the dream sequences that he has they kind of overlap a little bit um i i found the movie very very haunting uh and and beautiful it's kind of it's a very like kind of a very sad fantasy type of movie <coughs> um if i have a complaint it's that i think the end of the movie goes a little bit too far in making clear what was real and what wasn't which i would have rather it had been a little more ambiguous at mm. the end it's not it's not entirely uh, wrapped up by the end, um, but it did seem a little like, I, I, you know, I would have been fine walking out of here, not knowing what was going on. Although apparently maybe I'm the only one who felt that, or I'm uh, not the only one, but some people did feel because on the way out of the theater, some guy who also was seeing the movie alone was like, Hey, what happened at the end there? And so mm-hmm. we had like a conversation. Where I was like, well, I'm pretty sure that this happened. Like I, I yeah. kind of explained what I thought the ending of the movie was to him. And he was like,
2: okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess some people uh, felt differently, but I felt David, this is when you say, did you enjoy my interpretation? Here's my card. Listen to my podcast.
0: <laughs> um, so what are What's next for you? Next for me is Adam McKay's vice. Okay. Oh, weird. That is that is literally the next one
1: for you? Uh, the next oh, that's fun.
0: Um, <clears throat> um, because I think we were both cramming to watch it before release. So we probably <laughs> yeah. watched it the yeah, same that's true. time. Cause I've been putting it off. I'd had the screener for weeks, I was yeah. putting it off because I had heard it was bad. And
1: uh, guess what? <laughs> man, oh man! A- okay, as you know, like with uh, in 27- twenty seventeen, right? Yeah, uh, mother, Darren Aronofsky's mother. Yeah, and then uh, Boots Riley's. Um, Sorry to bother you i i like movies that are that have an audacity to them like even if even if i i don't agree with their goals or i don't agree with their politics like just maybe this is my version of what i was talking about earlier like just show me something i don't even give a shit if i agree or not i you yeah. know uh and while i did not really like the big short that much some of the the idea of a comedy director tackling political subjects yeah. and making movies that are not pure comedy, not pure drama, but this kind of weird in between and not and refusing to stick to a certain structure or format and just doing whatever strikes him as the thing to do in any particular scene. That's exciting to me. I li- yeah. I I like that. I like when somebody's willing to go wherever they want to go. But Vice is such a fucking mess and it's so it's it, yeah okay it's about dick cheney yes i'm conservative i'm not a fan of dick cheney but it's my problem with the film is not what it is not its political goals
0: and i am politically on board with adam yeah. McKay, and i uh, hated it just as much if not more than you did and i would say this is maybe to someone like me who has traveled in you know leftist to far leftist circles for most of my adult life. This seems like the opposite of audacious. This is, this is, this is such boilerplate, you know, anti, anti Bush, anti Cheney type of stuff. It reminds me of, do you remember this is like over a year ago at this point when uh, ESPN commentator Jamil Hill got uh, in big trouble for referring to Donald Trump as a white supremacist? And I, okay. was, and I was like, that is the tamest thing I've heard about Donald Trump yeah. all day. Yeah. Come check out my Twitter feed <laughs> yeah. if you think it's a big scandal for Donald Trump to be called a white supremacist. <laughs> I thought we all knew that.
1: Yeah. Um, that. And that's the thing is that like, <laughs> because stylistically Adam McKay is just throwing everything at the wall, which is an attitude that I usually respect. He's, he forgets that everything he puts out there is really not, it it just amounts to a Wikipedia entry. Like, you can just read all this stuff, yes, and there's some commentary in there as well. But even the commentary is so well-worn at this point. It's, It's, you, and the way, the only way to make that okay... It's like okay, well, we've heard all this stuff before, but hey, at the very least, at least we're learning more about this guy. No, none of that. I already loved uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-
1: this looks like this makes Nixon. It be, Nixon is everything that this movie wishes it could be. It's it's ridiculous. It's over the top, but. Within it, because I think to go to a word that you and I both mentioned in our reviews separately, yeah. uh, Oliver Stone is undoubtedly not a fan of Richard Nixon, but he is an artist mm-hmm. and he's curious. Yeah. He's curious what made this man do these things that I despise so much. And so he's willing to engage with this guy that, like, all right. He lost two brothers to tuberculosis. His mother put a lot of pressure on him. So like, all right, he is a guy who felt powerless most of his life. Maybe that, maybe that is one of the things that informed the power that he so desperately wanted combined with the love that he so desperately wanted and the approval, which could then lead to being terrified of losing those things. So what would he be willing to do to not lose them? You know, like, and within that, you can still condemn the actions, but still see the humanity underneath. Adam McKay is not interested in any of that at all. And it just. Yeah. And it's a shame because you. I think Christian Bale is doing good work. I think Amy Adams is doing great work. I enjoy Sam Rockwell. All the elements are there, but it's just so that this guy can, if you'll pardon me, just jerk off on screen because that's the that's the downside of following wherever he wants to go is it's going to be self-indulgent and a friend of the show Jason Eakin saw a screening with a Q&A afterwards and it was cu- it was so clear Adam McKay really thought he was doing something here like really thought oh, he was man. doing something no one else had done and he thought he was he thought he was being politically f- like fair As well. And don't be wrong, I don't think that you need to be fair, but the fact that he thought he was being and this is the movie that came out of it is yeah. astonishing to me. Yeah. Uh,
0: and also it's not funny is the problem it has. It has a couple it, things here there's and there. Like one thing I, I think, <laughs> um, Dick Cheney's third heart attack. I left. That's very funny. hysterical. Um, I love it. And then this isn't funny, but I think speaking of things we both mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned my review, but things we both, there's one scene I really liked. and I think it's the one same scene you really liked, which is the Shakespeare scene. Yeah. It's uh, really neat. Where, uh, if you haven't seen the movie yet, um, when Dick Cheney is is pondering whether or not to accept the offer of being George W. Bush's running mate, yeah, there's a scene that's like it's him and Amy Adams, but it's like they're like Richard III and Lady Anne Neville or whatever, yeah, like uh, plotting their future, and it's
1: you know in Shakespearean language, it's really really good. Yeah, it's written really well. The actors really pull it off. That's the kind of thing where it's an audacious choice but it works within what he's trying to do. It works with the characters. It helps us to see them in a different way. And it's the kind of thing that I'm like, it it actually, I think honestly, his, his, it forced him to write in a specific way, which I think gave him focus, which the rest of the movie doesn't have. And it's just, man, man, it's been a while. There's still some good stuff going on. I can't dismiss the film 100%, but when you but all that stuff all that does is make me frustrated that the rest yeah. of it is not. Yeah. Um I would have I would have liked it more if he had just gone pure com- like pure comedy with yeah. it. But like he has these moments of drama, like wouldn't you have loved Okay, maybe you wouldn't. But here's what I w- I was talking again with Jason. Imagine if he had made a a movie about Dick Cheney in the same mode as Anchorman, not Big Short, Uh but like Anchorman with Will Ferrell as George W. Bush, and then someone like Danny DeVito (laughs) as Dick Cheney. Yeah, yeah, that would have been that would have been so much more. Probably would have been funny, which this one unfortunately
0: isn't. Yeah. Uh, All right, we should move on. Um, All right, I watched uh, a, a, a. uruguayan film called the 12 year night now it's not available on netflix it is a true story of um well a number of um leftist activists um maybe more than activists maybe uh guerrilla uh you know um what's what i'm looking for not warriors but Militants, I guess, mm-hmm. um, were arrested in Uruguay in the early 1970s by mm-hmm. the military um, dictatorship and held for, as the title would suggests, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them are now, uh, or actually one of them passed, but two of them went on to, once they were released, when the, when the dictatorship fell, went on to be part of the government. In fact, one of them went on to be the president of Uruguay. Oh, wow. Another one is uh, still alive today and is a uh, playwright and poet. Um, but they spent 12 years in mostly solitary confinement. Um, and, uh, I, I, the movie, I think the performances are good. The movie does a very, I I think a pretty good job, um, of, uh, of, of dramatizing the, the struggles. One of the things that's very interesting, um, is that they, over the course of the 12 years, every few years, they seem to be moved to a different prison and they have to sort of learn new rules all over, all over again, which is, you know sounds awful but also the movie kind of suggests that that kept their minds more active having to relearn how to like find ways to communicate with with one another or learning new guards names and stuff like that like because they were in solitary confinement they um because one of them the one who ended up going to be president was not moved as much was not kept near the other two was more isolated and did kind of lose his mind a little bit mm-hmm. um which then the movie dramatizes in kind of very just standard movie just a lot of blips of images and sounds and stuff it didn't seem very inspired um so yeah it's uh, it's it's interesting interesting bit of history it's it's not great i think what it does from a political standpoint uh, what it illustrates very well that i think at the end is that as you see it's not like there was a military military dictatorship for 15 years and then one day there wasn't like mm-hmm. these things just as in uh, i researched this in the early days it didn't it didn't appear all of a sudden either sort of civil yeah. liberties were um were, were were removed over the course of the years and on the other hand sort of civil liberties are reintroduced under the military military dictatorship of the last few years of their imprisonment and you see even though they're still being held by the same people you see their situations change improve slightly mm-hmm. and so I, I think the movie really does illustrate how you know we You'll hear every four years certain Americans say, ah, it doesn't matter who you vote for. They're all the same or nothing's right. going to change. Yeah. But I think the movie does illustrate how just bit by bit changes in policy, changes in leadership do trickle down to affect everyone in some way or another. Okay. I found that very interesting. So I found the movie more interesting and in, in sort of politically than I did dramatically. But it's also a good hi- right. history. Um, all right. <clears throat> Next up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I couldn't tell
1: if you were clearing your throat or preparing yourself.
0: This is a little bit of both. I, okay. This movie's uh, okay. We've seen there's a number of we talked about when we did the fall movie preview with uh with Scott and Julie, the number of documentaries that are just like, here's a primer on this person. <laughs> right. Um so I watched one of those, it's called Seeing All Red. It's about Gloria All Red. Yeah. Um and that's a good title. Uh yeah. Uh and as those as these go it's in it's in the middle. It's not as um as as bad as something like I think RBG was this year, mm. but it's also not as good as something like Amy, the Amy Winehouse one was sure. a, a few years ago. Um, um or there's one that I'll talk about, I don't know, in an hour or so. Um that's a little better, but uh um yeah, I, I think i like seeing already a little bit better because a i actually knew less about gloria Allred than i yeah. did about rb about ruth Bader ginsburg so there was a little bit interesting but also because the movie does a better job it doesn't go it doesn't actually have anything critical about her god forbid <laughs> yeah but it does actually address criticisms about her because one of the major criticisms about gloria Allred, who if you don't know i don't know if you know listeners know she tends to uh represent women in sexual harassment cases. She ended up being the representative of many of the women who came forward against Bill Cosby and actually the Bill Cosby Mm. trial kind of, um, uh, serves as a, uh, through line, um, for, for this movie. Um, but one of the, one of the major criticisms against her that you see over and over again, even from, you know, uh, people that you would think of as more, allies like a Jimmy Kimmel type, you know, um, is that she's, um, always wants to be in front of a camera that she's oh, doing okay, for yeah. fame or money and that she's untrustworthy because of that. And the movie does sort of illustrate her point of view, which is that for these type of things, which as we've learned in recent years, are many of us, already knew or many, you know, many women already knew, but many of us men are learning just how widespread sexual harassment mm-hmm. and these things is that, that part of her job is not just to win the case. It's to, you know, use, sun, you know, quote unquote, like sunlight as it is infected. Yeah. She always wants to get in front of the cameras because that's how you get these things talked about. And she's yeah. kind of, I think kind of willing to be the bad guy. Um, and, and she's also, they, they also, go, um, uh, I, I did gain some respect. Uh, Not that I didn't have respect for her. I didn't know that much about her. But um, the way that she dealt with at the inauguration, she was there as a among the like sort of counter protesters. And there's this Trump guy who comes up in her face and is saying truly vile things to her. Like he says, um, oh, you're going to be so sad giving eulogies for all of your gay friends who commit suicide over the next four years. true true to her face saying these truly awful things this 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 MAGA guy
1: Um, which is fascinating for a number of reasons one is that like uh, not that i'm any defender of trump but politically he's like always been super in like for the last several years he's been like super in favor of like Gay marriage and that's sort of, like that's yeah, never been part of his platform, but yeah, the but he's also he never been consi-
0: consistent. And he would absolutely, I mean, he's obviously not been a friend to the transgender community with the military, right? Um, so he's willing to do what his followers, yeah. what his loyalists yeah. will say, and that's these kind of people. But this isn't really about Trump, it's about yeah, this guy, I know. it's
1: just, it's not, an yeah,
0: for a number and, of reasons. And her response, which is, and maybe it's because there's a camera there, but it's like so like she didn't, doesn't even really engage him. She's just like, um, obviously you and I both very much value the first amendment. (laughs) And I want you to know that even though I disagree with you, your opinion matters, you matter, you're a citizen. (laughs) Like it's really, Uh, (laughs) really interesting. Uh, Very measured. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not, not perfect, but, uh, you know, as someone who didn't know much
1: about her, uh, it it helped and then what a weird terrible thing to i mean it's yeah. like yes it is terrible obviously but also just like that's where you go first yeah that's weird yeah um okay and then third
0: uh third in this chunk um is uh, a movie called Roxanne Roxanne this is a movie that's available on Netflix just like some of the other. i watched a lot of Netflix uh, while okay. i was off work over the break um and it's um, a biopic of Roxanne Chante, Shen- who was one of the first major female rappers in um, uh, late '70s, early '80s hip hop. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, the movie is just not particularly. It doesn't seem particularly interested in her as a, as a as a as a as a rapper as a talent. You know, it's it become it sort of just seems like a laundry list of how many of things like okay, she lives at home in in Queensbridge and then her father left her and then her mother became an alcoholic and then she moved out yeah. and she was um, essentially stealing for a living and then she got discovered as a... And it just sort of like hits one thing after another and it spends way more time on her misery like with her mother and then eventually she gets hooked up with a... Um, I'm not sure if he's supposed to... It's Mahershala Ali plays a criminal of some sort. I'm not sure if he was supposed to be a drug dealer or a pimp mm-hmm. or something, but he ends up being kind of her not manager. Cause she also has a manager, but, <coughs> um, but then, you know, he is unfaithful to her and ends up, and also abusive to her. And it's just, it, I, I, I just felt like I didn't know much about Roxanne Shante other than like her being, uh, dissed in a very misogynist way in the KRS one song, the bridge is over because of course there's always a, Rivalry because hip hop started in the Bronx and this is Queensbridge, Queen and Queens, and of course, so these two scenes hate each other. So K R S one from the Bronx did a song called The Bridge Is Over, in which he just uh talks shit about all the Queensbridge rappers. Um uh and says I always liked K R S one, but it's pretty vile. He basically says that Roxanne Chante is only there for the other Queensbridge rappers to fuck. Um uh, so that, but unfortunately that's literally the extent of what I knew about her going into yeah. the movie. So was, I'm glad that I
1: saw, you knew that <laughs> she slept her way to the top. Obviously
0: <laughs> uh, I'm glad that I saw the, the movie, but, um, it, it just seemed really superficial and really unable to, to establish and maintain, uh, a pace of any sort. Hmm. Uh, all right. What's
1: next for you next for me is, uh, a rewatch. Some of the, so I, I I always, anytime we do a movie journal, I always feel like I should apologize for not seeing more movies, um, or for rewatching movies. Well, I um, you. I appreciate that. Not to you. Um, <laughs> you can go suck an egg. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I've that term in forever, I don't yeah. know where that came from, but anyway, um, but uh, yeah, I was out of town with my uh, in-laws, and so my uh, accessibility, my access to the television, was uh, right. Yeah, limited. Um, I could yeah. talk a lot about uh, football games that I had no stake in uh, or interest in. Um, but on the, you, you had no action? <clears throat> no. <laughs> oh, I wasted all my money on this year's uh, Oscar draft. Um, so, uh, but on the plane there, I did rewatch the death of Stalin. Oh, good. Um, which I love the first time I love even more now it is, you know, think of what vice is and now think of death of Stalin, Uh death of Stalin undoubtedly has, uh, genuine dramatic moments, um, and moments of real harrowing imagery. Yeah. Uh, and yet it is a consistent tone and it's to go back to this thing that I was talking about. Armando Iannucci he knew what he wanted to do and he and he required focus he knew that like all right we're gonna have to walk this fine line between drama and horror and farcical comedy Mm -hmm. but if we do this right which means we got to make sure every performance is dialed in uh the script has to be spot on and then the way I stage things which often includes people being shot on camera yeah, or the, just,
0: often just off camera or just off
1: camera um, which is which works both comedically and i think uh, probably as an economical choice sure yes <laughs> um and just he he totally understands what the the way to make a movie like this and as a result it is funny and the funnier it is the more horrific it is you know, you wouldn't think that that's the case, but that is the case. Yeah. Just these ridiculous people, uh, struggling for power which would be amusing, not unlike Doctor Strangelove. Like, which would be amusing if you didn't realize the way the power manifests itself in the Soviet Union uh, at the time. And it was just, uh, it's just a marvelous film. I love all the performances. Simon Russell Beale as Beria, I yeah. think, is especially good. But you know, I, I know that we're not supposed to talk about Rus- uh, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, but boy, oh yeah,
0: he's is. He's got, well, the one line from the trailer, all of you can kiss my, yeah. Russian ass, which is even funnier in the context of what yeah. it is in the trailer, but also when Steve is trying to do the, we'll make it look like it's part of the
1: ceremony and trying to move in front of him, yeah. he's like, what, what the are, the you? Fuck <laughs> are you doing? <laughs> and then there's that one that it's just such a, it's such a, it's a joke I've seen in different ways uh-huh. where he just says, no problem. He goes, I, I said it, I should have said no problem um yeah. which which reminds me of that wonderful simpsons episode with uh, lionel hutz where <laughs> the simpsons go to to visit him because there's an ad that says free consultation no money down he goes oh well this was this is not correct so he goes and with a pen and writes it he goes free consultation no money down <laughs> which i think is oh so beautiful but yeah uh i i love the death of stalin it, it uh, upon rewatching it it has worked its way into my uh top 10 okay um and it's just such a novel fascinating way to make this movie and i don't think anybody else like when you look at in the loop and you look at veep i don't think anybody else could have made this movie this way uh you know and be and been half as successful it's a um, uh, it's marvelous
0: I also really, um, and, uh, Rupert friend who plays mm-hmm. the song, like the Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Homeland fans have known who he is for years, but I feel like he, um, probably deserves to be better, no. better
1: known. He's very good in this. He's also in, uh, at eternity's gate this year. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, uh which yeah. I've not, I've not watched yet, but, uh, yeah. And, and Jason Isaacs is, I mean, everyone's great. Yeah. Jason yeah. Isaacs is a lot yeah. of fun.
0: Uh, Rupert friend, uh, When he first shows up at the autopsy and there's that long, him and the guard struggling (laughs) for the gun and everyone's just sort of standing there like
1: almost bored waiting for it to be over. And then, and he starts yelling at everybody and just like, and singling people out. And then he points at this one guy who's got a beard. and goes, you're made mostly of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, it's delightful. Uh,
0: all right. Next up for me is I watched, speaking of friends of the show, this going way back, but I watched, uh, Gemini directed by friend of the show Aaron Katz and yeah. shot by a uh, friend of the show Andrew Reed mm-hmm. who were on a very early episode is that part of the first 40 or is that I think available? it's just out of the okay, first so 40 but be I might available. be you can go I might be wrong. to it um, but uh, uh, I really dug Gemini I don't want to say that just because they're friends of the show but Andrew Reed's cinematography is uh, really beautiful um, and kind of in- intoxicating um, and it also reminds me it reminds me of I guess some of the obvious um, uh, references would be like the long goodbye or things that are kind of revisionist noir. Mm -hmm. Like basically the premise is Lola Kirk plays LA based, right? Yes. Lola Kirk plays the personal assistant to a movie star played by Zoe Kravitz. And then Zoe Kravitz is murdered. Mm -hmm. Um, and the detective played by John Cho Um, sees Lola Kirk's character as the main suspect. And so she goes sort of into hiding, she changes her hair and her clothes and everything, and is sort of she runs away from the cops, is in in hiding, but um, uh, also is trying to solve the the murder herself, Hmm. and going around to Zoe Kravitz's contacts the people who worked with her and she's um I think there is sort of maybe some commentary on the world of behind the scenes movie making where it's almost a joke that within twelve hours before her murderer at least three people have said I'll fucking kill you sir." <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, but um what the real not that the movie's funny it's not but part of the what I think is funny about the movie is that ultimately she is very bad about being incognito. Mm-hmm. Didn't really need to be incognito uh, by the end of it, and also the murder ends up kind of solving itself without any of what she did over the first, over the ninety minutes of the movie mattering at all. Um, and I I, I really like that. Idea, which the the not the last feature he made was Land Ho, but the one before that, Cold Weather, mm-hmm. twenty ten, I think that was the one before that, was also kind of like a detective movie that was only half it was half interested in the sort of appearances and the character himself was like solving a disappearance, but also was like, well, I got to look the part. I got to get like a deer stalker cap. And yeah. like, so I think that it, these movies kind of work as a, a diptych of way in a way of, um, uh, detective noir. That's more about the trappings of detective noir noir and less about actually being yeah. a mystery that needs to be, to be solved. And I find that very, I guess the big Lebowski is very much like that. Oh yeah. Uh, that too. Um, but it just kind of goes, the big Lebowski has an incredibly labyrinth themed plot that doesn't mean anything. Whereas Gemini has almost no plot really. Mm. And it doesn't mean anything. All right. <laughs> um, but it's not a really straightforward comedy. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a sad movie, but it does have very funny, um, parts in it. Next up is a movie that you've seen. Oh boy. It's called The Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. Um it's a quick 90-minute uh horror thriller. Yeah. Uh no, I liked it. Um it didn't uh uh it didn't do what I was afraid it what it was going to do which is cheat the premise. <coughs> uh, you know, it Okay. It has it really has very little dialogue. Yeah. Um I I really thought when I when I heard the premise of the movie I was like they're probably going to do a bunch of flashbacks to before. Sure. To before it came to yeah. like pad out the runtime and give you more flesh out the characters more, but no, everything, there's no flashbacks. Everything, uh, is, um, get gotten across with, uh, a pretty good economy of information, mm-hmm. which is so surprising from John Krasinski because his last movie, the hollers was oh. among my least favorite movies that
1: year that it came out. Um, yeah, I haven't seen any of his other stuff, uh, but I knew that it was nothing like this, uh, yeah. and so like this is a this is a hard movie to pull off uh, directorially. Yeah, um, you know you have to have an ear for sound design, obviously. I do think I'm not the only person to say this. I I wish that it had it didn't have any music. Um, uh, that didn't bother me. I, like I just I just I like you know, music. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean I it's it's good music, but I do feel like I don't know it almost felt like a concession to me. Um the idea is like, all right, we the studio will let you an actor who's directing a, mo- a horror movie, we will let you do this thing with very little dialogue, but you can't have it be silent. You know, like and that would that bummed me out. Like I don't know I like the music. It's yeah it's it's fine <laughs> and, and it it does what mu- you know film music is supposed to do but i remember just I but what
0: it had i mean i don't know like that's <clears throat> that sounds good on paper but or, like maybe it would have sucked yeah it, it maybe it it, it might, the music
1: yeah and i mean you know there are moments uh I don't want to spoil anything but like there are some really great performances by both John Krasinski and I mean the whole cast actually is yeah. is great and there are moments you know in between them where it's all in faces and and sign language uh and the music definitely plays up the emotion and it's hard to know if it would have that impact without yeah. the music so yeah that's it's a it's I guess more than anything it's something I was I would be curious to see the same movie but with no uh, non-diegetic music. Uh,
0: yeah, the only thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is that I, I need to stop. I want movies to scare me. I needed. I need to realize something I we've talked about on the podcast before, which mm-hmm. is that just because a movie a horror movie doesn't mean that it's actually scary, right? I didn't find a quiet place scary at all. I think no, mean, there is some
1: tension. Yeah, It's suspenseful.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's suspenseful. Uh, that's a good good word that I should have used. Um, but uh, at least. Hereditary, which I think is overall not as good a movie as A Quiet Place, hmm. is also is actually scary. Yeah. I didn't feel scared by A Quiet Place. That's not even really a complaint. It's more about just my how I think about horror movies. And I need to realize that they're not necessarily going to scare me.
1: Well, and yeah, and they're all they all are, are trying to do something different. This is a movie very much about anticipation, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to and it's about avoidance you know as opposed to something is just ever present or something you know bursts into the scene i don't don't, i'm not even talking about jump scares um you know this is all about we need to not do something oh shit we did it now what do we do yeah um and so it's it's all that and and i don't think I would, even though it is a horror movie, I don't think I would describe it as scary. The yeah. way we talk about scary, it's definitely suspenseful and very tense.
0: You know, I, I forgot. There's one part that I think is a little bit scary when he and the his son come across the older couple in the woods. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. Yeah. Uh, all right, but I don't want to go uh, into detail. Like you said, none, of, yeah. not everyone's seen it. Um, everyone has seen it, but none of yeah. <laughs> um, Okay. Oh man. Next up, total surprise of a movie. Uh, Cause it has a bad title okay. and it's based on a true story, which increasingly makes me skeptical that I'm going to sure. be bored. Um, but I saw Janusz Metz's Borg versus McEnroe. Oh, okay. Which apparently in <clears throat> Sweden is just called Borg. I think they, for the American release, they yeah. call the Borg versus McEnroe to play up the John McEnroe is a character and that he's played by an American <laughs> yeah. actor, Shia LaBeouf. Um, but uh, I really like this. Not, in no small part because Shia LaBeouf is great mm-hmm. as John McEnroe. He is great, especially having seen, um, the John McEnroe documentary that came out, uh, mm-hmm. over the, over the summer. Um, uh, I was really Im- impressed with, with how, with how good he is. Um, and how he like, takes control of the situation by being agitated, which seems counterintuitive. Yeah. But there's a part like even before he goes to the, tur- it takes place in 1980, Wimbledon the tournament, even before he goes to the tournament, he goes to his doctor's office and, uh, the receptionist calls his name when the doctor's ready. And then he goes in and immediately starts complaining about the receptionist calling his name when he's the only person in the waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's just him being John McEnroe, just like yeah. bitching to, to take, to, to get the upper hand in a way, but yeah. it's a great little scene that Shia LaBeouf just kills. The uh, actor who plays uh, Bjorn Borg is uh, Sever Goodnison, who was um, just in The Girl in the Spider's Web uh, as well. He's fine. He looks like Bjorn Borg, which is, I think, probably a big mm-hmm. part of why he was cast. But um, uh, So, yeah, the movie's about the 1980 uh, Wimbledon tournament, um, which I won't, you know, you can look up what happened, but the whole premise of it is that John McEnroe is this up and comer. Bjorn Borg has won four Wimbledons in a row. If he wins the five, he will have set a new record for Mm -hmm. number of Wimbledons in a row. So the movie takes place over the course of the tournament with some flashbacks to both of their childhoods a little bit uh, as they as each of them defeats the people they need to defeat to the fight to get to the final match. That's the two of them. The one thing I will say is, at this point, I'm willing to say maybe this is my problem. Okay. (laughs) But tennis movies will always lose some suspense for me because tennis scoring doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I can't. It's been 36 years of me occasionally just looking it up or even in the john McEnroe documentary there's a whole animated thing like explainer of how tennis scoring works and yet by the end of it i couldn't i can't follow it it doesn't make sense there's like it's like six games long (laughs) but then each game has like three games inside it and then it's not just like one two three four god forbid (laughs) the scoring it's 15 30 yeah uh, it drives me crazy so like i'm watching the final final and i'm like should I be on the edge of my seat or is there like, are there two more games after this game? <laughs> yeah. Like I never know. That's a minor complaint. Cause I, the actual final match is very well done. It just lost some, it deflated a little bit for me cause I could never tell when it was almost over.
1: There are times when I, when I'm watching a movie and, and there's like a card game or something that's happening and it's not poker or blackjack. And, uh, uh-huh. and so, nor is it, uh, you know, uno, but, and so, like, you know, but they'll lay the cards down, and the and the camera will like focus on it, and there will be like a like a like an echo sound effect as the card goes down. It's like, all right, <laughs> yeah, this seems to be important. Yeah, I'm not even I, good at poker. I'm just gonna hold it. poker. Yeah, I guess that's yeah.
0: Um, but no, I think the final thing that I want to say about Bor- uh, Borg versus McEnroe is that um, in some ways I found it to be less about these two men, and it is more about Bjorn Borg. Like I said, it's a Swedish movie, mm-hmm. um, even though it's largely in English because it takes place in London. Um, it's not; it's less about these two men than it is about sort of their national identities—Sweden S- or Scandinavian in general, in America, and America—and different ideas of exceptionalism in a national mm-hmm. identity. Because the, the the sort of conceit of the movie is that. The the press at the time was like, Oh, John McEnroe's the hothead and Bjorn Borg is Iceborg, they called him. He's like cold as he's mm-hmm. ice water in his veins. But the premise of the movie is that they're actually both incredibly emotional, passionate, uh, reactive players, but uh, one of them because of American identity was more free mm-hmm. to be blustery, and one of them because of Scandinavian identity or Swedish identity in particular was encouraged over the course of his training yeah. to keep it inside uh I found that really interesting and <coughs> really really
1: well well made I, I was I was very surprised uh what's next for you next for me uh skipping over uh one that we've already mentioned um is a a rewatch um the next couple are going to be rewatches because I was uh in Minnesota and I was kind of watching what was what other people were watching and uh the family had decided that we are going to watch the matrix on tnt (laughs) and i thought what a fun novelty i have not watched a movie like this yeah like with commercials with commercials and let's not forget censoring uh so what is that like with commercials what does it make like three hours uh, yeah, because they didn't they didn't edit it for time. Like it right. was it was yeah. yeah it was easily two and a half to three hours, um, <clears throat> and it was it, it was it, this is you know I I, I often uh, criticize the film uh, Grindhouse um, because I feel like it's Tarantino like mythologizing and romanticizing this way of watching movies that people at the time were frustrated with Mm -hmm. and only someone like him would think it was amazing. Um, but I will say watching this movie on television, which again, it's been easily, I mean, 15 to 20 years since i've watched a movie that way right um because i i stopped finding it acceptable when i was a teenager yeah uh but when i was a kid this was exciting to me you know the sunday night movie on abc or something like that and uh and watching it i was like i remember this this is very exciting (laughs) uh and then i thought like what are you talking about you hate watching a movie this way just just like it, it ruins the m- the momentum um i mean they're not putting the commercials in willy-nilly they do time them out for a certain moment which is fine but uh it was just fascinating as far as the film itself uh you know i've seen it many times and uh <clears throat> i i adore the structure and uh, the special effects are great and i really enjoy uh hugo weaving Uh, he really is i mean lawrence fishburne is fun joe pantoliano is fun keanu reeves it's a good type of role for him uh but the real breakout is hugo weaving and he's just just enjoying himself so much um and and yet there's this very he's just playing the disgust but he's also he realizes like well i am just a computer program and so i need to how how would a robot show disgust and it's mm-hmm. like clearly he's putting a lot of thought into his performance um as far as the script itself man not great <laughs> Uh, it, you know, stru- like I said, structurally it's great. The concepts are great. Some of the characters are are really interesting. But that dialogue—it's—it's mm-hmm. it, similar in many ways to my frust- some of my frustrations with the script to Inception is that they will often stop and explain things, mm-hmm. uh, and. <clears throat> that's not necessarily a crime and you know this is some pretty high concept stuff so for them to feeling like they have to do that i totally get it but at the same time it that really interrupts the momentum uh thankfully the stuff they're explaining is at least interesting um but yeah it's uh it's frustrating and there's these little moments that of just personal disagreement. Like there's a moment where the mouse character says like to deny our impulses, to deny what makes us human. It's like, no, I'm pretty sure that's what separates us from animals. (laughs) One could say the denial of impulse is the exact thing that makes us human. What what the hell are you talking about? I recognize that there's a difference between human and machine. And you're trying to say that we have biological impulses. Okay. That's fine. But like,
0: yeah, but they don't have any animals. I guess there's that, yeah. So there's nothing to separate them from the
1: animals. Yeah, which is interesting that the character saying that is named Mouse- but anyway, uh, well, how about that? But yeah, so I thought that was that w- that moment was interesting, and, and it's something that I'm sure when I saw that as a teenager, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And in retrospect, was like, what are you talking about? We have the impulse to punch each other in the face all the time, yeah. and we don't do it yeah. because we're human and not monsters. But anyway, but it's it's still a it's still an amazing film, and you know, uh, a groundbreaking film as far as special effects, and and. I'd say a cultural touchstone. That's the mm-hmm. other thing. Like when I, and not just for special effects, but just came out in, in 99. And I think for yeah. people our age, and maybe if people a little bit older or younger, like it was like this amazing film to watch. Yeah. Cause it came out of nowhere. That's the other thing. Like I remember when it was released, like I hadn't really heard anything about it.
0: Oh, they, they did. They only did like teaser trailers. They didn't yeah. tell you what it was about. That's it was like, true. What is the matrix?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a good, it was a good campaign and, and a yeah. really great payoff.
0: Yeah. Alright. Um and then do you remember when AJ Soprano got his mom The Matrix on DVD for her birthday? <laughs> Not even wrapped just in the plastic bag from
1: the store. I have no memory of and that. Tony's but that like is... real thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. Um uh,
0: speaking of mouse mousey. Rachel McAdams' character in Disobedience is kind of mousy. Okay. Uh, no, I saw uh, Sebastian Lelio's Disobedience, which I, I I don't know. Sebastian Lelio, I really liked Gloria. And also Gloria Bell, which hasn't come out yet, but I saw mm-hmm. it at, at Toronto, which is the English language re- remake of Gloria. I like both of those. A Fantastic Woman I mostly liked, who I had some problems with. I think we talked about it a year ago. Disobedience is kind of in that in that case. It's not necessarily problems, it's just... I uh, I find the movie to be an interesting character study, but emotionally it falls prey to so much sort of middle-brow prestige stuff where it's like desaturated, like everything oh, like, okay. oh, this is serious because the sky is always gray. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it does, I mean, it takes place in London, so maybe the sky is always gray. Um, but uh, Rachel Weisz plays a character who not lives in New York, but grew up in an Orthodox Jewish Orthodox community in London was exiled slash chose to leave after, um, having an, a, a same sex uh, relationship with <clears throat> another woman in that community. That woman stayed behind and ended up growing up the community and getting married. Uh, she's played Rachel McAdams, Rachel Weiss's father dies. So she comes back to the community for the first time in like 15 years or something like that, uh, or more. And finds that Rachel McAdams is now married to um, a a man, but a boy she was friends with, played by Alessandra Navola. And what do you know? They kind of start things (laughs) up again. But um, yeah, I I, I wish the movie weren't so cold feeling because I think there's actually some really interesting stuff going on character wise in terms of. I think people sort of like me. The, The type of. People who tend to move to big cities, move to the coast, people who left a place that they felt was too narrow for them to fit in. Sure. You know what I mean? The further you get away from that and the longer you spend away from that, the more you tend to reduce the place you came from to all the stuff you didn't like about it. Mm-hmm. And so Rachel Weiss comes back and she is a bit. I mean, on the one hand, you're on her side because the rules of this place are so draconian and unfair, but on the other side, she's kind of superior. She's acting kind of superior. Yeah. And, um, some of the, some of the members of this community deserve that because they're stuck up. Some of them, most of them are just people. And Rachel McAdams kind of embodies that in that Rachel, Vice sees her as this like tragic figure. Like, Oh, you were like me and you, I left and you didn't, you had to right. stay. And it is like, is torn because on one hand she is, she is never, it wasn't just a phase or whatever for her. Like she's right. never, um, stopped being attracted to women, but also her place in the community and her faith in the, her Jewish Orthodox faith. faith is not something that she's putting on as a cover. Up. It, right. it, it is real to her. Yeah. And so, uh, I find the movie most interesting, in terms of Rachel Vice's character relearning that the place she came from is made up of real people yeah. as opposed to the things that she's reduced them to in her mind because, because they heard her, which they legitimately did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think we see that a lot. You know, I, I, I think people, there are a lot of in this part of in Los Angeles, probably in New York too, there are a lot of, um, like, maybe self-hating Midwesterners. Sure. You know, and I probably, when I first got out of St. Louis was probably like, so glad to put that place in my rear view, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I've, you know, I've, uh, I I, I think I've become more, more well-rounded, but I think there are certain people who like were legitimately felt like they couldn't be themselves at home and have a gripe, but the more time they spend and the further they get away, the, the more, they become in in a, in a sense narrow about oh, yeah the place that they came from. It's uh, I thought that, I thought that was really interesting. I wish the movie had a little more life to it. Speaking of life, holy shit! Okay, could be more different. The next movie I watched, which is Coralie, uh, what is how do you say her name? Uh, Coralie Farge's Revenge. Okay, which is um, uh, an entry in the long and problematic. Uh, Genre of rape revenge thrillers, Um, but this, uh, I uh, unlike, uh, weirdly unlike most rape revenge movies, this is one that is directed by a woman, Mm -hmm. um, written and directed by a woman, and uh, definitely, um, I feel I think has more. It has a different sensibility to it, which is not that it. It does, it does not shy away from uh, objectifying its lead, the, the woman who, who's, who's raped, but it also, unlike way too many rape-revenge type movies, it cuts away from the rape itself. It un- we understand what's about to happen, mm-hmm. and that's enough. As it, in most cases, as it should be. Yeah. You know? I mean, there are certain movies like Last House on the Left I can never bring myself to watch again because the rape is just so brutal yeah Uh, you know and especially a movie that has comic relief in it it's such a (laughs) last house the left is such a weird movie and i don't really i kind of understand that its place in history is because maybe people hadn't seen it something like that before sure but i don't actually think it's very good Uh, (coughs) uh, but the other thing about revenge is that um, it's not a you know grimy hard-nosed gritty rape revenge movie it's Absolutely brilliantly beautiful in, in its colors mm-hmm. including the color red because i don't know if you know this movie takes place in an alternate universe where people apparently have unlimited amounts of blood in their bodies <laughs> the people and there are given this genre there are actually relatively few deaths but they are <laughs> insane yeah it's so so bloody there's a part where after she's gotten away they you know, she's raped and then they try to kill her to cover it up. She's gotten away and they're trying to follow through the desert, her blood trail. And it's like, <laughs> there's no way that this person <laughs> could still be moving after having lost that much blood. Yeah. Um, and then and then it, only, the only thing that tops that is the finale in which two characters who are both bleeding profusely are chasing each other around a house to the point where the entire house the floor is covered in like an inch of blood and they're slipping around <laughs> trying to get away from each other. Um, it's, uh, it's so insane. It's so insanely gory. Uh, <coughs> but it's also kind of psychedelic and really gets the revenge part. Like you're really on this woman's side. Like mm-hmm. it's a survival movie. And then you're like, fuck yeah. stab that yeah. guy in the eye. Like get him, you know, um, there's a part, uh, the, just the, It's sort of the inventiveness of how uh, how bloody this movie is. There's a part where she's being chased by a guy. And so to trip him up, she smashes her flashlight. So he's barefoot. So we'll have to run over broken glass. Mm -hmm. So he runs over broken glass. gets a huge shard of glass in the bottom of his foot, which he then has to pull out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not the only like shot in the movie of someone removing an impalement from their body. OK. So then he finally gets up again. He gets to the car. He's trying to start the car barefoot gash open it won't start every time he tries to push down on the accelerator a huge spurt of blood comes out of the bottom (laughs) of his foot the movie's full of stuff like that yeah uh it's insanely bloody it's so much fun uh if you are into that sort of thing yeah uh it's it's terrific i really really loved it and the uh i want to look up the the lead actress um uh Matilda Anna Ingrid Lutz. Well, oh, wow. um, she's so great. She has almost no dialogue in the entire movie. Um, in fact, I think from the point of her rape on never speaks a word in the rest of the movie. Um, uh, and even before that, she's, we see her as the men see her as an object. She's walking around this, um, <coughs> this secluded, like fancy desert house in like bikini bottoms and, and stuff. Um, it's very, you know, it's done very intentionally to start us off as a certain kind of movie. Um, and, and, uh, what ends, what starts as a objectified performance because becomes an incredibly lived in, uh, fully embodied physical performance. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's really, really great. Um, okay. Uh, moving on to a, spanish movie that i'd heard almost nothing about but i'm really glad i watched it it's called sunday's illness um and it's about uh there's an older older very wealthy aristocratic type woman uh who throws a dinner party and she finds out that one of the caterers she's hired um is her the daughter that she gave away from a previous marriage that she's essentially ignored because she's moved she married rich and now has moved up in the world and she's like Um, most of the people in her high society world don't even know about this previous marriage or daughter. Mm -hmm. She hasn't seen her in like 30 years or something. Um, And the, turns out the woman is not a caterer there by accident. She worked her way into this house because she has a request. She doesn't want any money or anything like that. She just wants her mother to come to her home for Mm -hmm. a couple weeks and just live with her for a couple weeks to get to know each other. Um, I'm not going to tell you much more than that. It goes other places than that. It's also not, um, not, uh, I feel like what I'm describing may sound like more of a conventional domestic drama in terms of presentation. It's very beautiful, but very somber, very still, very uh, meticulously composed in in terms of mise-en-scene and shot, choices and framing and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I said, I won't say much more about where it goes, uh, because it does kind of have, I guess a bit of a twist, but, um, uh, yeah, it's really, really good. And the actress, Barbara Lenny, uh, I swear to God, um, is also in everybody knows the, the, um, Asgard for Heidi movie that came out this year. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so that's uh what's next for you. <clears throat> okay.
1: This is another rewatch, sorry. Um and this How is one, are you? Yeah, I know. Uh this is also one that uh uh in-laws wanted to watch and
0: What network was it
1: on? It was on Yeah, it was on Netflix, sorry. Uh and it, it was uh Black Panther. which I had not seen since the theater. And, but more specifically, I had not seen since, since our conversation about it because your criticism, not, not your only criticism, but like the one that really struck me was this idea that the film is not creative enough insofar as, you know, Wakanda essentially exists in this alternate universe, like where, it had from you know it's been operating in kind of this parallel way. Right. The rest of the world has been doing this stuff, but it has been doing what we do. But Wakanda has this uh, deep reserve of vibranium. Vibranium. I was going to say unobtainium. That's not it. Yeah. Uh, it's got this <clears throat> deep reserve of that that has created this amazing technology. Uh, but what the film didn't do is it didn't It doesn't acknowledge that. Yeah, when you when you have access to this, it might as well be time travel. Like imagine going back in time to a primal culture and then introducing this amazing technology, you will have changed their course. Mm-hmm. You're not just going to be like, "Oh, they'll be the same except their spears like shoot lasers and shit." You <laughs> yeah. know, it is not going to be that.
0: Yeah, it's weird that like <clears throat> this Black Panther's vision of this this tech tech you uto- it's a utopian future. Yeah. But also one in which the technology has only almost entirely been used militaristically. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it should be a dystopia in that sense. It should be a, like a military dictatorship, right. which it kind of is, except everyone seems to be happy.
1: Well, and that uh, you, so you mentioned that, and uh there's a moment when a character uh is, I forget, I forget the name of the actress and the name of the character. she, it's Michonne from The Walking Dead. Anyway, uh, uh Denai Guerrero, yes, is the actress. Okay. I don't remember the character. So her- she's also in uh Infinity War, isn't she? Yes, she is. Um once again, I do not recall her character's name, but It's um, going to bug me. <coughs> but she uh she's, you know, uh, uh, essentially like a, a general like a military uh leader in Wakanda, Okoye. Uh yes. Uh, and there comes a moment when like people are shooting r- just regular old guns at her and she says like guns, so primitive. And I was like, you decide your leader by fucking hand to hand combat <laughs> and guns are primitive. By the way, you're just shooting lasers. Yeah. It's just uh, different uh, yeah, it's a different gun. Yeah. It's a different gun. And it's that kind of thing where, because Wakanda like, that is that that's that's the movie like that attitude where like oh we're going to play up the 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 advanced nature of it but we're still going to do the exact same thing that we would do otherwise yeah. and the movie still is it's it's a lot of fun a lot of fun character stuff michael b jordan's marvelous andy Serk is a lot of fun um it's still a good movie but like once you mentioned you know, that's not, that's something that did not occur to me. Um, it, it to me, it goes back to, I, I guess I'm mentioning inception a lot. It's that idea of in inception when Tom Hardy says like, Oh, you must learn to dream a little larger. Right. And then he pulls out just a larger gun. It's like, yeah, no, in dreams, you can do anything. Yeah, and your solution, you're you're going to admonish this person for not coming up with a slightly larger gun. <laughs> that's that's it. That's your ambition. And so yeah, so Black Panther, like looking at it the way that you that you mentioned like lines like the one I just met that, that I just mentioned about like them looking down on this other culture. It's like, no, you're just like, essentially you've used this amazing technology. To just be one step ahead. That's it really. Right. Um, yeah. Which is not a fault of the characters. It's a fault of writers, not really understanding the full implications of their, of their concept.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. And yeah, it, so it's uh it bummed me out watching it. I, again, I still enjoy it, but when you think of what it could be, it'd be, it'd be so exciting.
0: Um, do you uh, uh, you you follow award stuff better than I do you're better a prognosticator and also our recent our guest last week Lino gave us trouble for talking about the Oscars too much but is Michael B. Jordan oh he did yeah you weren't there Michael B. Jordan is he going to be nominated for an Oscar for best supporting actor
1: there's a good chance there's a very good chance
0: I hope so he's definitely the best part of the movie oh no question about it Um, All right. where was I oh gosh Darn
1: it. All right. uh, next up for easy, me. Easy, easy there. <laughs> um, it's a family podcast. <laughs> That's not true at all. Uh, what kind of terrible family uh, would listen to this together?
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, <coughs> next up for me is uh, really a truly beautiful movie that, um, uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's Leave No Trace, directed by Debra Granik. Uh, it's the first narrative movie since uh, Winter's Bone, eight, mm-hmm. eight years ago. Um yeah. she made a, a documentary in between called Stray Dog. <coughs> and um <laughs> I'm I'm start, I'm struggling because the timeline's all weird, but we will be talking about this movie in a few days. Yeah. And we already recorded when we talk about it. So I'm trying to say something new. But um uh, I I think she has Deborah Grinick has such a such a gentle touch that she's able to get away. With um, some things that are would otherwise be seen as on the nose, but are actually uh, in, incredibly moving. Um, there's the 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 story is that uh, Ben Foster plays a, um, a war a veteran um, who uh, lives with his teenage daughter in the woods. They survive in the woods off off the radar, and then they're sort of discovered and taken in and sort of forced into, into civilization. Um, and, um, the, uh, the, the, the daughter is more willing to adapt to civilization than, than Ben Foster is. And there's a, like, there's a beautiful part where they meet near a, a mobile home where they're staying. They meet a woman who keeps bees and there's just these beautiful shots that actually drove my wife crazy because she, she like felt all crawly. Mm-hmm. But of just the girl holding out her hands and bees like crawling all over her hands, and um, there's something so, on the one hand, so obvious about like, oh, this is bees are a community, mm-hmm. and this is a this is a girl and her father who have never, or at least a girl especially has never really experienced yeah. that and is clearly longing for it in a way that she can't even vocalize um it's it's an obvious metaphor and yet it's uh it's it's so touching it also has um i know yeah we're both fans of winter's bone i think there's something that uh i think a true humanist filmmaker can do which is to show just regular people being regular people and make it funny without making fun of them yes. just by see- there's a part where she, she meets this boy who's uh, this like teenage boy who first off uh his ho- his hobby is that he raises um rabbits and then displays them at 4-h shows <laughs> and also he's building himself a tiny house you've seen those like tiny houses uh, yeah so this is probably he's it's just a framework and he's giving her a tour it's this tiny little thing <laughs> of what the, tiny, what the tiny house is going to be and he goes he goes uh Right here, I'm gonna put a window above the kitchen sink. I can look out while I'm doing dishes. Pretty nice. <laughs> uh, it's full of moments like that. It's it's so the movie is so warm and understanding and loving and and funny. Uh, it really is a it's a masterpiece. It's even better than Winter's Bone. Wow. And I would say it's not even really close. And I like Winter's Bone. Um, and then oh, speaking of masterpieces, we're getting two in a row here's one that you've seen okay. uh, the directorial debut of comedian Bo burnham eighth
1: grade floored me i was about to mention as you were talking about the kid giving the tour i was about to mention the macaroni and cheese scene is it, it's mac and cheese right with gabe no it's um it's chicken no, nuggets, it's chicken nuggets. <laughs> that's right and that's he got right. uh <laughs>
0: <That's right. laughs> that is the most touching and hilarious scene oh it's marvelous he got two of every dipping sauce but you probably if you run out of one and need more i probably won't use all of mine so you can have one of mine it's <laughs> like so sweet yeah. it's so hilarious uh and they bond over rick and morty yeah um I, I don't know how everything fell so perfectly into place for eighth grade it's it's unbelievable in in it's the screenplay is perfect the naturalism of the actors, not only Elsie Fisher, but also Josh Hamilton. Oh, as yeah. the dad. The kid who plays Gabe is great. The girl who plays Olivia, the high school girl, is
1: mm-hmm. also terrific. Um, who's the name of the like the, the dreamboat guy that she's like <laughs> super into? Aiden? Yeah. That actor is perfect. Where it's yeah. this idea that like you realize that, that I mean not that not that I would have been attracted to that kid, but I would have been like, Oh, I wish I could be cool like him because right. when you're that age, you look at that and you say like, man, that kid's cool. When you're an adult, you're like, the kid's just a kid. It's just yeah. a dumb kid. Yeah. He's a real dumb. Yeah. He's,
0: he's yeah, not a very thoughtful kid yeah. at all, but that gives him confidence. Exactly. Unlike the main character whose name of, uh, Kayla. Yeah. Um, who is very thoughtful and intelligent and as is often the case with people who are thoughtful and intelligent especially at that age uh is too uh introspective to be confident yeah um which is not to say that all confident kids are stupid i know i know confident kids that are smart kids and i'm weirdly jealous of them now still 36 years old <laughs> yeah my my uh, my nephew just turned 14 and is like the greatest capable smart he's got tons of friends i'm like you little <laughs> fuck that kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, uh, all that stuff fell into place. I also want to mention the score by Anna Meredith, Yeah. which I think is, I, you know, I, I don't want to always frame things in, in terms of uh, <coughs> awards, but it is award season. I think it is a little too, you know, of the moment to, uh, to really be approved of by the people who tend to vote on best score type thing. just yeah. by it hasn't, it hasn't really shown up that much in award season, but it is one of the best scores of the season of the, of the year. Um, by far, uh, yeah. it's up there with, I think all my favorite scores often end up being, uh, made by popular artists because yeah. I think Johnny Greenwood's score for you are never really, never really here is the best thing about that movie. Hmm. Um, Uh, So maybe that's just my problem that I uh, can't wrap my head around straightforward movie music. Unless it's uh, Alexandre Alexandre Desplat. Yeah. Because Isle of Dogs is great, but even that's not really straightforward.
1: I wouldn't call it at all. Yeah, no. He, especially when he works with... uh, uh, Wes Anderson? Wes Anderson. Like, he does seem to come at things kind of from an odd angle. Um, But... So... uh, Ultimately,
0: the two movies in a row here, Leave No Trace and Eighth Grade, are just such uh, staggering examples of completely unjudgmental, completely sympathetic humanism that I I don't know that I could have properly emotionally prepared myself for
1: either of these movies. They both really knocked me over. And isn't it interesting, having not seen Leave No Trace, but I can't swing a dead cat without hearing somebody talk about it. (laughs) Um, The... uh, but I have seen eighth grade and isn't it interesting? Both of them, the trappings might be different, but the stories are very similar. Uh, like single father and a daughter who kind of do the, kind of have their own thing. Uh, but the daughter is get, is a little bit, you know, because of the age, like needs to engage with people in her age group and needs to engage with the community. And that might be a little bit, yeah. Uh, frustrating at times, yeah. Um, and yeah, and and that moment, I, I love the moment where her dad like finally like says what he feels, but I think it's written in such a wonderful way because it's not overly poetic. The poetry comes from the feeling, yeah, not from the yeah. words, because he's not a linguist, he's not a writer, yeah, uh, he's just a guy trying to He's a big dork. He's you know, a big dork, great. and he's he's marvelous. It's a, I yeah that I. As a comedian, I think Bo Burnham is is hit and miss with me. When he hits, he's great. Uh, when he misses, it's like, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went into this film really expecting it to be like too precious or or maybe judgmental or simplistic. It's none of that. Yeah. It is uh and an incredibly loving film. Even even the but character of, of Aiden. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: hilarious. <laughs> the first time we see. Aiden so he and the popular girl I forget her name Uh, (coughs) what is it it starts with an oh I just watched it it's like oh well I can't remember Um, they win at the end of 8th grade they win best eyes yeah and so when they call up the girl I can't remember her name now yeah Uh, uh, Kayla's like good job and then when they call it Aiden, it goes to the animative, like yeah. music. And then it just like cuts out and you hear her go, good job. <laughs> and also the, uh, the other scene that's really funny is her in the car with her dad being like, don't look like that. Don't look all weird and sad and quiet. He's like, I'm sorry. I no, it's okay. You're being quiet and that's good. Just don't be weird and sad. It feels like you're going to drive us off the road. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, and then next up, A huge change of pace, a movie that flew very much under the radar this year, directed by Ricky D'Ambrose. It's called Notes on an Appearance, and it is uh, only about an hour-long movie, and it is about a, uh, I guess, a college-age kid from the New York suburbs, Chappaqua, uh, to be uh, precise, who moves into the city um, to move in with someone and help work on a, uh, help as a researcher on a uh, biography of a uh political philosopher a fictional mm-hmm. one they made up for for the movie um and then this kid disappears and so it suddenly becomes not about him but about the f- friends he sort of friends he only very he was the only very recently got to new york so you've got the kid the main uh, actor who's name i forgot but he was um did you ever see little sister a few years ago um no okay he's the uh the older brother the big brother right. and little sister. That's the sequel. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and, but so what I'm describing sounds kind of like a thriller, but the movie's actually, um, I think kind of a gentle and very knowledgeable satire of young New York city intellectuals. All right. <laughs> um, uh, and the way that they, talk about their feelings more than feeling them or instead of feeling them and the way that they prioritize uh things that that they walk around in the real world that you and i live in but all of their thoughts and conversations are about these writings and and the things that they're writing, the things that they're reading, the things that the, the art shows they're going to. And it's not, but it's not like a C it is a scene, but it's not a scene. It's a, it's, it's, it's a deconstruction of a certain brand of young intellectualism. Um, that is also made clearly for that audience in some ways, because stylistically it is very unconventional. It's all just square frame, mm-hmm. single shots. Sometimes those shots, Include people in dialogue. Sometimes they're just shots of texts from the book or the placards at the art show that say what the art the artist is and what media media they used. Um and it's it's very dryly funny. Um but I also think if you're gonna make a satire, make it about something you know, and even if I don't really know this world uh, I think
1: it, it seems like an effective, effective one. Hmm. All right. What's next for you? Next for me, uh, is a film. The, I believe it is the only film. Is this right? Hang on. Yeah. It's the only film in the history of the world that everybody in the world has seen bird box. Um, (laughs) it's so you, you've got bird box fever like the rest of America. America. Yeah. I've got bird flu. Um, have you taken the bird box challenge? Good God, I, when I read that, <laughs> and, and I read it as Netflix begs yeah. people not Yeah, to that's do how it. I saw it, too. Um, but, uh, and I was like,
0: what is the Redbox Challenge? I mean, he went like, oh, oh of course. walking around with a blindfold on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I could have figured that out.
1: <laughs> um, oddly enough, it's just rowing a boat. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah. Uh,
0: I almost am happy to be so perplexed that everyone (laughs) likes bird box this much. It's it doesn't seem like a, uh, it doesn't seem like a, I don't know what to say, like a mass audience of movie, but like it also is not particularly great. I don't, it's not
1: very good at all. I don't, what fascinates me is that in the same year as a quiet place, not to necessarily think of them exactly the same way. They're not exactly the same, but they sure are similar. Which is a far superior film um, Bird box has a lot going for it um, It's not a bad movie it's got a great cast uh, It's got Sandra Bullock turning in a, a good performance uh, same with the uh delightful John Malkovich um, yeah playing little Roe Howry uh, yeah it's yeah it's a it's a surprisingly uh, Tom Hollander, not Tom Holland right do you know and do you know who plays? the for two seconds uh john malkovich's wife uh i looked it up yeah it's rebecca, to rebecca pigeon. pigeon yeah like i when I, I i recognized her she came out i was like oh neat i didn't know she was in this oh she's not <laughs> got it okay um <clears throat> and then uh oh shoot who plays uh her sister uh sarah paulson uh, sarah paulson that's
0: you got right. Rhodes. yeah you've got a brief appearance by david dust Malchian.
1: yeah it's um, a it's a
0: great machine gun kelly uh, uh, yes that's rising right. star rosa salazar it's oh, the know. cop lady, but oh, okay. she's Alita Battle Battle Angel in the upcoming oh, okay.
1: uh movie that looks horrifying. Um, the uh I forget the name of the I forget the last name, but the actor's first name is Happy, uh, who plays the guy uh on the lake, who is also oh, uh, also yeah, plays yeah. one of the killers in Mindhunter. Um That's right. <clears throat> oh, and I'm also forgetting, of course, um,
0: <coughs> the Actor whose house they're at, the character whose house they're at uh, from Jurassic Park and uh, Mr. Oh, Robot. Oh, B.D. Wong. B.D. Wong, yeah. Oh, and Jackie Weaver's in it. That's right. Like, this is... And Danielle McDonald, a.k.a. Patty Cakes, a.k.a. Dumpling. Oh, okay. <laughs> the first movie she's in where she's not, where her nickname isn't the name of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> or what if her name is Bird Box? <laughs> yeah. They're
1: like, easy there, Bird Box. Like <laughs> Malgovich throws it out there. Um, yeah, it's... I, I mean, that's a great cast, you know, and the premise is fine. My issue is that like, it's, it's, it's a zombie movie. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a survival movie. It's a, it's con, it's as conventional as you get. Yeah. Um, and like, okay, they have to blind themselves when they go out. That's going to be difficult. And it may, and like the, the, the GPS sequence is kind of neat. Uh, but also
0: given what we've seen about what the street looks like, Completely Not possible. Not possible. Unbelievable. Um, we left out a major actor, by the way. Uh,
1: yeah. Shoot, now I don't remember who it is. Pruitt Taylor. Oh, of Vince. course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and then that revelation—I, no pun intended—saw coming a mile away. Um, <laughs> I didn't, but but uh, uh, maybe because I had already kind of checked out of the movie. The yeah. Um, it's and and that's the thing is it's 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 handled in a in a very in a fairly effective way. It's just incredibly conventional. It's This is something that happens every once in a while. Uh, people will see it and they'll be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But when you're a movie person, you say, no, we've seen this for years. But what gets me is that between The Walking Dead and zombie movies in general, everyone has seen this for years. The idea of a group of people hold up and the tension gets, you know, and there's the obligatory asshole character yeah. played by Malkovich in the film. Yeah, Like it's it's all so run-of-the-mill um it's it's done well but it's it's like a good episode of law and order (laughs) it's not that different than the other ones yeah um with the exception here being the the themes are worn so on the film's sleeve that it actually becomes uh distracting and then they actually do some stuff they do some things to underline the theme that I think dramatically took me out of it. The fact that she's looking after these two kids who she has named boy and girl. Yeah, ridiculous. And then to hear her say, boy, girl, it's like, that's funny. That made me laugh. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I had to remind myself, Oh no, that's, those are their names. But it's just to have her say boy and girl. It's, it's, it's something that I totally get why they do it thematically but I don't think it actually works yeah. in, in, in life, especially because in, in the film, because they even pointed out, like you didn't even give them names and stuff. You just call them like, I don't know. It's, it's, I wouldn't say the film is a misfire. It's effective, certainly from an acting standpoint. Um, but yeah, it's whatever.
0: Yeah. Uh, I also have a problem with how the boy girl thing resolves itself, but that's a bit of a spoiler. So uh, yeah. we'll talk about it off mic. Um, <clears throat> all right. Next up, I watched a documentary that I was um, on the fence about watching because I was like, this is going to upset me. And it did, but I'm glad I watched it. Uh, it's called Active Measures, which is a documentary about uh, Putin and Russia's involvement oh. in the 2016 okay. election campaign. Um, but I think what I ended up liking about it is I was expecting because I've seen so many. Going back, I, I, It started. there was a cottage industry starting in the George W. Bush years of just like liberal scare documentaries, you know? Yeah. Karl Rove's brain or something like that was one of them. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, and I used to watch all these and I think no, I, it was just
1: called Bush's brain, but it was Bush's about Karl brain, Rove. Bush, that's yeah. right.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, the one thing I watched, I remember watching that with a friend, a friend of ours, uh, <laughs> not a made yeah. fan, but a friend, literally a friend of ours. We haven't um, talked to him in a while. Maybe <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was a her. Um, oh, sorry. And, Someone is talking about the Patriot Act in Bush's brain, and they say uh, um, <laughs> literally a handful of senators read the thing. <laughs> i just picturing, like, just a
1: little senator. Oh, our, say, <laughs> our government just became so much more adorable.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, but uh, but what I liked about Active Measures and what it also— I mean, it's a, it is a scare documentary, but it is not partisan. It is very specifically not partisan. It is very specifically— interviews people, I guess it leaves out the Republicans who have become, who have become Trump. Yes, men. There are a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. And basically the point is like, this is terrifying no matter what. And, you know, this could happen to extremists. You know, they could have turned toward extremists on either side of the argument, uh, which some people will say they, there's a reason. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is that, the point is that Putin and Russia didn't back Trump because they're also like Republicans or right wing that's where right. they found the weakness. Yeah. They don't care. All they want to do is destabilize. They don't yeah. uh, and I, I so the, the movie is a ton of information um but it uh I, I think it,
1: it's one of the few political documentaries that I don't think would be like people could probably benefit from seeing I okay so I'm I'm gonna ask this and this is not me trying to like say this is not whataboutism I don't like the idea of that but I was gonna ask you know they found a weakness and I do think and maybe this is just my opinion I think Obama never took Russia particularly seriously as a threat to such an extent that during a debate uh between him and Romney the 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 moderator asked romney like who's the greatest socio what's the greatest socio political threat on the planet and he said russia
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then obama said he goes oh, the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back like he was making fun of romney for even considering russia to be an issue uh and That's then and then there's that the the hot mic thing where he was ta- where obama was talking with the russian ambassador and he said like tell vladimir that after the election i'll have a lot more Flexibility in regards oh, to like right. Poland and that kind of that. thing. And so I do think that. I think that Putin being a fucking like hardliner and just he's going to do what he's going to do. Uh, I feel like he has been looking for weakness. I think he found just a general lax attitude towards Russia in the Obama administration and then saw like a full on opportunity with Trump. And so I wasn't sure yeah, no, like, how, how deep do they go they into They don't
0: it. go back very far. Okay. They, That's too yeah, bad. In, in terms of that, it, it really is located on the, campaign in the election. Yeah. Like that's that's what it's about which it's already
1: so much information like yeah. maybe maybe that just needs to be another documentary. I I um, would like to see more about Putin in general. My I've as you know I've been fascinated with Russia in general uh as a country v- from the Soviet times and such but uh, you know, and just the some attitudes like George W. Bush said, like, "Oh, I looked in Putin's eyes and I trust him," and then McCain said, "I looked in his eyes and I saw pure KGB." Like, and it was just it, Putin as a world figure is fascinating because he's still around. Like, he was kind of out of the limelight for a while. Of course, I'm sure he was still around, right, yeah. but uh, like, he is. There really aren't that many world leaders that are this much apart. Of the conversation. Yeah. And I would like to know more about him uh, because he's insanely popular in Russia. Like he has a huge approval rating because he's seen as like this strong leader that can destabilize strong countries, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, sorry, I've been talking so, too long.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's active measures it's on Hulu if you want to watch it. Okay. Um, and then I watched another documentary uh, called reversing Roe" about the about sure. Roe versus Wade. Um, it's, um, definitely in terms of what I was saying about active measures in terms of viewpoint, Mm -hmm. this is definitely a pro choice movie, but it's not, it's not one sided. It is, it is not unfair to the pro life, uh, movement, um, uh, or point of view. It just clearly has a choice, but it does. I think, I think, I think the movie does a good job of, um, being neutral when presenting the pro-life point of view. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think cheat. There is one part, I think when it comes to like the, uh, it doesn't seem to, cause it's showing presidents who have been in like, Ron Reagan to some extent, George HW Bush to a lot of extent and Trump to a lot of extent had been vocally pro-choice mm-hmm. earlier. And then became pro-life and sort of suggests uh, this is just opportunism because that's how you get the Republican nomination. Um, I think it also has that to say about certain religious leaders where I want to be like, well, maybe that's the case, but be at least open to the idea that they really, (laughs) this is just really a moral thing for them. Maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, I maybe want to see Lake of fire, which I never saw because I
1: I have uh, it here on my shelf. Still haven't watched it. Uh,
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, Because I was expecting this to be, um, something else. There have been so many abortion documentaries in recent years, and many of them I think are very, very good. I think Abortion Stories Women Tell, which is a boring title, but uh, I think that was a very good one. Uh, this one attempts to be a history of Roe versus Wade, essentially. <coughs> uh, the history of how that case came about, and then the history of <coughs> cases that have challenged it, and how abortion law, like how we think of like Roe versus Wade is still... Preserved, but it has been chipped away at over yeah. the years, especially in 1992, um, uh, which which they when they came to the what they call the undue burden clause, which allowed states to put restrictions, like not to ban abortion, but to put restrictions on it that make it harder and harder. And that's mm-hmm. how you have um, so many states where there are only one abortion clinic uh, uh, right now. Um, and it interviews interviews a lot of really interesting uh, people, including a, uh, I'm as a, as a pro choice person myself, I'm ashamed how many recent abortion, uh, documents about abortion, um, center in Missouri. Cause Missouri is one of the hardest States in the union to get an abortion in. Really? There's one, one clinic left in St. Louis County or maybe in St. Louis city. I can't remember. Um, but the doctor who lives in St. Louis and works there also is because it's harder and harder to find abortion doctors. So she spends, uh, every other week going to Oklahoma to work at that clinic or going Hmm. like to wherever. Um, uh, it also, what else? Um, there's also an, uh, Uh, abortion doctor, I can't remember where he works out of, who's also a minister, which is uh, surprising. But I think the the movie is the most interesting because I don't think, um, we don't tend to think about this, but that pre late 70s, early 80s, abortion was not seen as a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. It really came with the rise of the moral majority, as and evangelicals as a political force, and their backing of the Republican Party, that suddenly the Republicans became the pro pro life party. No, it wasn't. Uh, it didn't. It wasn't really an issue that belonged specifically to a party before uh, evangelicals
1: aligned with the
0: Republicans. That 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 I found was the most interesting.
1: Yeah, it's definitely you know talking about it from from my side. It definitely is because yes i'm i 'm i 'm reluctant to use the word pro life because I know that but i 'll just say it just because it 's easier um, being that i i can't i can 't really have that be my one issue when when it comes time to vote, partially because so many as you mentioned like so many like republican politicians like make promises about it. And then if they get elected, they don't do anything about it. And so it becomes very clear to me. It's like, okay, so you want, it's just this carrot, not all of them, of course, but it's this carrot that you dangle in front because for a lot of people, of course it's, it's either way, it's an incredibly important Mm -hmm. issue. But, um, but that's the thing is like, I think you just want to like push say like, Oh, I'm for this. So you should vote for me. And it's like, well, it's, and I think it's, I think it's silly to reduce it down to that one issue, especially if you see that nobody's going to do anything about it, you know? And, and while I'm sure that you are happy that nothing is getting done about it, like the point is like not nothing, using I mean, it, like, right? Yeah. Like,
0: were, you know, it is becoming harder and harder. Yeah. I mean, te- Texas had that thing a couple of years ago that, uh, this is included in the documentary where, what was the, state legislator's name who filibustered
1: Wendy, Wendy Davis. Davis. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. which she filibustered and it lasted that worked. It delayed the law by about two days
1: and yeah. it went through anyway. And that cut the number of clinics in Texas of like yeah. in half. Missouri fascinates me. And I'm speaking generally now because it's such an interest because you've got like Kansas city and St. Louis, which I'd say are fairly left leaning. Mm-hmm. St. Louis city is, but the County is full of Catholics. Oh yeah. So okay.
0: Yeah, and, and Missouri in my lifetime has gone further and further to the right. I mean, right. When I, I guess- was when I was a, like a teenager, for years we had a Democratic governor, Mel Carnahan, and right. then he um, ran for Congress, died while running for Congress, and uh, his wife, because he still won, yeah. Even though he was dead, when the uh, I voted for him, <laughs> no. even though he was dead, and his wife uh, Jean Carnahan
1: went to uh, went to Congress. What an odd rule! Was <laughs> she there for like the full term?
0: Uh, I you know I don't remember um, if she was, but uh, and then we, we still have. I mean, for the time being, I think we uh, did Claire McCaskill win or did she no. lose? So she, we don't have Claire McCaskill
1: anymore, right? So. It's
0: uh, uh, Holly. Uh, Is that his name? I can't. Remember. So there's like, so there were major Democratic figures: Dick Gephardt, oh yeah, El Carnahan, Claire McCaskill from Missouri.
1: These names are all coming back to me now. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: but over the years, the state has just gone further and further to the right. Hmm. John Ashcroft was our governor when I was. That's actually, right. When yes. I was a kid.
1: Um, <coughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Because uh, I've, because of the various places I've lived, I don't really pay any attention to any one of them.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I just kind of focus on when I lived there. Um, uh, okay. Sorry, we should move on.
0: Yeah. Move on to, um, a movie that, you know, I was talking about this with my boss. Like, uh, I like that. Like net Netflix. Cause I'm not precious about the theatrical experience. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> like Netflix gets a lot of movies made mm-hmm. these days or requires a lot of movies. And I'm really happy that those movies are getting distributed, but sometimes they come and go and it's a shame. Uh, And this movie, I don't know how to feel about that with with, because it's not a great movie, but it's a perfectly good movie. And that's Nicole Hollow centers, the land of steady habits.
1: Yeah. I saw it. You saw it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I liked it. I mean, it's a better than average midlife crisis movie. Yeah. um, Because it doesn't pity. It doesn't, it doesn't pity. It's, protagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, it eventually is on his, it sympathizes with him yeah, and it cheers him on when he makes positive steps, but he also makes a lot of negative steps and the movie doesn't cut him any slack, um, on that. He's played by Ben Mendelsohn doing an American accent, Mm -hmm. um, which I, which I enjoyed. Uh, you've also got Edie Falco, you've got Thomas Mann, you've got Charlie Tehan. Yeah. Um, Michael Gaston is the, um, the Charlie hand's father. Right, yes. Um who was recently in first reformed. Uh he's the, That's big, right. the big donor. The yes. like, uh, yeah. Is he an oil guy? Or uh something like that. He Works that, for like yeah. an energy company, he's yeah. a donor to the church. Um uh yeah, i really I really come have come to like him as a character actor. Um he's also a big anti Trump guy. I don't know. How oh, is <laughs> you, <he? laughs> you should look at his Twitter avatar, which is he somehow found himself in a place to have a photo op with Trump and managed to surreptitiously give him the finger while the, when the photo was taken. So the, uh, what an odd turn of events. <laughs> yeah. So the Michael Gaston's Twitter avatar is him giving Donald Trump the finger right next to him without Donald Trump
1: seeing. Well, obviously I'm going <laughs> to pull that up right now. It's very funny. Um, I've forgotten his name. What is it? Uh, Michael, uh, Michael Gaston. Gaston. Okay, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, and then you've also got Connie Britton. Uh, can't believe I left her off, off the list. Um, uh so I think I'm gonna talk about the movie positively. Again, it's not as great as some of his uh or some of uh, Nicole Hollisner's uh other other stuff, but um Oh Elizabeth Marvel is uh who I'm forgetting. And Bill Camp and Josh Pius. Yeah. Pius. Um Uh I think where the movie succeeds again, it is about a you know, it seems like a movie that's almost made to be mocked at this point in time because it's a rich he's literally he's a finance guy who retired early a rich white males midlife crisis that i can i can just hear the chorus of people on twitter going who gives a who gives a why should you watch this
1: but what uh, based on that i like the idea of it because given the cultural moment, there probably are a lot of guys like him Mm -hmm. who he himself is like, well, I was so tired of that. I wanted to go and like do something good, but he has no idea what that, what that, what that, that and get out of the mindset that he was in. Yeah. uh, And fails to realize that in trying to be a freer and be a better person, he winds up hurting people that he loves. And so like, I'm sure there are a lot of people, a lot of like middle-aged white guys who have lived a life of, of privilege and they look at the world and like, you know what? And they feel a little bit to use the Christian term, a little bit convicted personally. And they're like, okay, what can I do? But they actually wind up maybe doing more harm to the people in their lives emotionally yeah. than, than otherwise. Uh, so I, I well, certainly i don't think people would necessarily people might question the the necessity of the film to be made right now but it's like no no no. i think it's it's kind of perfect
0: yeah no i i think that's a that's a great uh argument in favor of it uh i do, I, I can see myself watching this movie again some, uh, at some point because it's uh again it's, it feels like a middling effort from nicole hollow center but it still has more going on than i think the the a, a brief plot summary yeah uh, gets across especially since it is it, it's more of an ensemble than you think given that i mean he, he's the lead character yeah but uh especially the kids thomas Mann and charlie tehan have full yeah. plot lines of of their own uh and so does edie falco uh to some extent um uh uh, I forgot what I was gonna Oh yeah, and it's also like a lot of Nicole Hollis Center's movies, it's very funny. Yeah. Um <laughs> part when because Gabriel Mann is uh he's like twenty six, twenty seven. Thomas Man. Uh Thomas Mann. Yeah. Who's Gabriel Mann?
1: I don't know, that's, that's someone. Someone, right? Yeah.
0: Um <coughs> uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look that up. Uh Thomas Mann is a twenty six year old, like hasn't done anything with his with his life, is now uh delivering um <laughs> Uh, booze delivering booze and he uh oh gabriel man he was in he's in the born identity and the born supremacy but he was also in josie and the pussycats oh okay um anyway so thomas Mann. uh anyways he ends up delivering booze to the house of one of his like high school classmates who is now super rich and is super mm. successful and um thomas Mann like can't help be rude to him, and then as he's yeah. leaving, his friend's like, "Well, I'd give you a tip, but you're a colossal dick." <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, I do like the character of Tom, of Thomas Mann quite a bit uh, because he is an asshole and he's really aimless. And you kind of, on one hand, you kind of feel like he's sort of a like a victim of the of his parents and his dad, especially in like the way he was raised. But you also just like the film seems to sympathize with, not unlike the, the father seems to sympathize with him, but also hold him accountable for like a kind of an entitled attitude yeah. and, and this feeling of, of, well, I'm, you know, my life's not great. I'm kind of a victim. And so I'm justified in, in, just kind of screwing around and sort of wasting my life. Yeah. Um, and there's that very amusing image of him with that giant wine bottle, the giant champagne, <laughs> giant, bottle, giant yeah. champagne bottle. <laughs> uh, all right. What's next for you? Next for me is uh, uh, the film that I watched on the way back from Minnesota. Um, let me look up the uh, info about it. It is. Ben Falcone's Falcone's uh, life of the party. Uh, as you know, I am a big fan of Melissa McCarthy. Um, I think she is a national treasure, as far as uh, comedically and and increasingly dramatically. Right. Um, she just has a way of making things fun. She can just inhabit these characters. Not to imply she gets lost, but she just commits fully. Like I was watching some SNL sketches with her. She does not look at the cue cards. Like she's got it down. She, and she does not break. She will often play ridiculous characters, uh, uh, and just plays it with total, uh, conviction and commitment. And I really appreciate it. That said, life of the party is just a waste. It is just, it's a film. It's this woman whose husband whose asshole husband plays by played by Matt Walsh is divorcing her. Uh, and so she decided her big thing was like she never finished college uh because she got pregnant, and so now she's gonna go back to college and she's gonna go and so she winds up hanging out with like her daughter and her daughter's friends. And it, it's there are sort it 's very episodic. there are little set pieces, very few of them are actually funny at no point there 's no real through line. There are like some mean girls that are you know jerks to her and all that but there's no real there 's no stakes there 's no through line it 's just a bunch of stuff that happens, and many of the scenes just kind of go on. It kind of has that improv thing. Yeah. That I think is a shame because when Melissa McCarthy sometimes it can work. She especially can do really well, but when she is focused, like something like Spy, which still has a lot of improv, but because it, of what it is, it needs to have that forward momentum, um, and this just doesn't like it's. It of course it has its moments because she's a funny person, and and there's she really seizes upon certain moments, but it's a movie that I wanted to turn off on a plane. I had nowhere else to be. And yes, there are other movies I could watch, but I was like, I I'm not invested. I'm not interested. Uh, I should just turn this off and just flip to something else. But I was like, no, no, just see it through. Yeah. I'm like, man, this movie's long. And I don't think it's particularly long, but it's cer- it certainly felt long. And so it was just uh, it bummed me out because she is somebody that I think I'm always going to enjoy. Uh, but the film directed by her husband uh, who directed her in Tammy, which I didn't see, which I heard not great things about. And the boss, which was OK. I did like the boss. And there are moments in there that are that are pretty solid. Um, but yeah, it just uh, just did not work for me. At all.
0: All right. Um, uh, this is the next up for me is the, the other, um, uh, biographical documentary that I mentioned like two hours ago. Okay. Uh, it's called Quincy. It's about Quincy Jones. It okay. is directed by, um, two people. One of whom is Rashida Jones, Quincy Jones's daughter. The other one is named Ellen Hicks. Um, and uh yeah it's kind of, it's kind of what you uh expect but there is to a certain extent that there's a lot there's a lot of material mm-hmm. in Quincy Jones's life that's pretty amazing the the number of major artists that he's been involved in the number of great great records you know, you can make an entire documentary just on him and Michael Jackson, but there's also him and Ray Charles and him and Frank Sinatra. Mm. And, uh, just, uh, it an entire, you know, you can make an entire documentary, about his music scores, he's just a really fascinating guy. And he's in the time of the filming of the documentary is 82 years old. Um, still has a lot going on and a lot to, to say. Um, yeah, it's, it's not bad. There's, um, the sort of through line is he's, uh, been asked to be the producer of an event for the opening of, um, an African American museum at the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you see that performance at the end, but like you see him planning it. And one thing that I like, is this was a few years ago, um, still during the Obama administration, he's naming like big celebs that he wants there. um, and he's like and obviously uh the first lady and the president like for the first lady is <laughs> yeah. like the first one that came to mind for yeah me. Uh, i thought that was very funny um after that um i I told you I had 30-something movies, but that's only because I'm, uh, in this case, condensing like a dozen shorts into one, Okay, because I watched a new Blu-ray release uh, yeah, like I was Flickr Alley. When I
1: saw you post it, I was uh, envious.
0: Yeah, um, I watched all, almost two and a half hours of color uh, <laughs> shorts by Georges Méliès, and it includes A Trip to the Moon and I think 12 other um uh, shorts that have all been, uh, restored by lobster films from hand, mostly from hand painted nitrate. Mm. Uh, they've regraded the colors. So there, there's some, you know, digital, uh, what's what I'm looking for. Um, oh, well, Log- augmentation oh, okay. maybe is the word I'm looking for. Um, But yeah, there are a ton of fun. Like I said, it's almost two and a half hours worth of thing worth of shorts. And they flew by. Mm. Um, The longest one is like 22 minutes. The shortest one is literally a minute long. And it's one of my favorites. Okay. It's called the infernal cauldron. And it's just George Melia, who was starred in most of his own movies as like a demon throwing people, (laughs) throwing people into a burning cauldron. And then at the end, they're like spirits turn into pillars of flame and dance around the room. And then it's over. (laughs) (laughs) and there's a number of like kind of disturbing things like that. There's one called the merry frolics of Satan, which is like Satan. And what's so funny about it is most, it's one of the longer ones. It's like 20 some minutes. And most of it is like Satan comes up to earth and he's just like, it's just like, oh, that's Satan. Like he's just like messing stuff up, turning horses into weird, like floppy mechanical animals and like doing weird stuff. But then he like takes a guy down to hell and then his minions <laughs> roast him alive on a spit.
1: Oh, that's Satan. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy.
0: <laughs> he's um, a scamp. The name of the collection is uh Melier's fairy tales in color. Most of these aren't really fairy tales. Yeah. Some of them is one of them's literally called uh Kingdom of the Fairies. Um and that one's really cool looking. Um, they, it, some of the thing. What's so fascinating about George Miller is that his special effects, his methods, are so rudimentary, mm. and yet he had such, seemed to have such an innate understanding of lensing and framing and blocking that he still makes it look like a magical plan. Yeah. So there's, and part of it is there's great set design. But Kingdom of the Fairies takes place like an underwater kingdom. <laughs> and there's a shot where it's clearly like oh he just put a, an aquarium in front of the lens and you're seeing fish but it works yeah. so well just seeing these fish float around and it really sells the illusion that you're underwater um uh and then there's an, oops, there's another one uh yeah cause a lot of these are you know a trip to the moon is Uh, his best known and and is is known for things like when they bop the like moon men on the head, they disappear in a poof and it's because Mm -hmm. they like stopped the camera and then started it again with a poof there. It's a very easy thing. Uh, And there's a number of things like that. There's one chronologically. The last one um, is called whimsical illusions. And it's great because it's just (coughs) a magician doing tricks for another guy. And, it starts off clearly this guy's a professional magi- magician and he's doing tricks. But then as the short goes on, there's more and more like special effects. Like clearly that mm-hmm. he's not really like, he's doing the thing where it's like, Oh, he's like, it look he's lifting the thing out, even though out of the box, even though it looks like there's no string or whatever. And like, yeah. all right, that's an illusion. But then he's got like a skeleton dancing around. It's <laughs> like, okay, that, that is clearly using some visual effects or some special effects there. Um, but some of this stuff is like I said, with the, aquarium some of this stuff is not really in the camera it's present there and there's there's one the um Robinson Crusoe again not a fairy tale, but there's one of <laughs> Robinson Crusoe in the beginning when he's unloading his supplies out of the ship wreck it looks like a how do you say the n- uh <laughs> I'm thinking of the Sopranos again. Okay. There's a French style of painting. is like Trompe Louis that like it's, uh, meant, yeah. to, it's meant to look, it's like two dimensional, but it's meant to look like it's real right. or whatever. I'm thinking of the Sopranos because little Carmine, <laughs> when he built his new house on the New Jersey shore, he had a, a fake window that looks like looks out of the Italian countryside. And he told his like, <laughs> he tells his like henchman, like uh, that's a Trompe oil fool the eye <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, little Carmine is, <laughs> rivals Livia Soprano for most hilarious lines on the Sopranos <laughs> um, anyway but there's a so Trump Louis are you say it uh, painting of the boat and you're like oh it looks like, almost looks like there's a real boat but then you realize there are more levels to it so he actually can go inside yeah. what looks like a two-dimensional painting it's really fascinating stuff yeah uh, i've talked too much about these but the the blu rays out now it's called Millier fairy tales in color uh and then before throwing back to you i will talk about Wildlife, the direct debut of Paul Dano. Mm-hmm. I know you are always skeptical about actors getting behind the camera,
1: which but is pr- which is unfair of me because it it, it it does often, maybe not often, but it regularly works out okay. Um, I know this year we've had
0: A Star Is Born, mm-hmm. and now Wildlife, which and, is and
1: Eighth Grade, I would say.
0: Uh, I guess he's an actor, yeah. Um, <coughs> uh, oh, wildlife is. A, Really, really stunning, uh, uh, movie about it's, it's, I mean, it, do you know who's in it? Yeah. So it's Jake Hall and Carrie Mulligan. Mm. Neither one of them is the lead though. The lead is the son played by Ed Oxenbold from, yeah. uh, better watch out. And, uh, uh, the visit. Right. Which I never saw. Um, and so, uh, but Carrie Mulligan is amazing in this movie. Mm. Um, Probably I mean, probably the best performance of her career, which is saying something because she's been great a lot. <laughs> uh but Jake Jalen Hall loses is the dad, he loses his job, he's too proud to take certain jobs, he ends up taking a seasonal job, going off to fight a wildfire fire uh in Montana, um, where they live. Uh and so the movie very much at the beginning puts you on the side of Carrie Mollian. She's this level-headed person who wants to do the best for their family and for their son. And is dealing with this husband who is, whose pride and impulses are getting in the way of their ability to provide and have a stable life for their son. Yeah. So you're clearly on her side, but then as she becomes more unmoored Mm -hmm. as, uh, as Jake Gyllenhaal's character is away as, as she's running out of money and ways to provide, she starts behaving in ways where you're like, jesus lady (laughs) um i don't want to get into yeah um but uh and then you know the movie eventually comes to a place where and all this is happening from this 15 year old boy's perspective uh eventually comes to the place where you kind of see the faults and positives of of both parents Mm. but i think it is really really uh uh precise um and impressive how paul dano Moved your sympathies um, while always maintaining your sympathy with the kid. You're seeing
1: his opinion of his parents change over the course of which is not at all uncommon. Like it's I mean, when you're growing up, you probably identify more with one parent than the other. Like one is, you know, for myself, uh, I grew up really favoring my mom because she was more emotional than my dad. And I feel like, and she struck me as the one that was more creative, whereas my dad was a little bit distant and kind of intellectual. And then as I got older and I became better able to communicate Uh, I think maybe this is something of a, of a fault of my dad that he, I think he felt maybe better able to relate to me now that I could speak more on his level. Um, but I still could. And we discovered a lot of things in common and it's not to the, it's not that I started to see the flaws in my mom. It's more that as I got older, I started to identify more with like the male in my life. And, uh, that's, that's not at all in common, but to replicate that in a film, uh, it seems like it'd be remarkably difficult to do.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's re- really, really great. Um, uh, also has bill camp in it. Um, right. as most good movies do, <laughs> um,
1: uh, the movie, I'm, a movie is better when he's yeah, in it. Yeah.
0: Uh, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank now on the cinematographer's name and the, um, I don't know, the internet's uh, spotty here or something. So I'm not, uh, getting it, but, um, kind of, uh, Rivals, another movie from this year, first reformed in mm. terms of like spare beauty. Okay. Um, that was upstate New York. This is uh small town Montana. Um, but there's often not a lot in the frame and yet it doesn't feel overly precious in the way that it's, it doesn't feel Wes Anderson. y. Mm. <laughs> but it's
1: a, yeah, a really, really beautiful movie. Definitely worth checking out.
0: All right. What's up for you?
1: Uh, David Lowry is the old man and the gun. Um, did I say that? Did I say David lowry uh, correctly? Yeah. yeah. Lowry, right? Okay. Yeah.
0: But not the guy from Cracker, the band Cracker. No, that's him. It's not him. Um, <laughs> because when Ain't Nobody Saints first came out, I was like, did the guy from Cracker direct the movie? <laughs> I looked
1: it up. It's not him. Um, Yeah, I really liked it. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd yeah. say I loved it, but I really liked it. Um, it is... <clears throat> a really interesting portrait of, of somebody. Um, it's, you know, based on a true story of this guy, Forrest Tucker, who was, uh, a, basically a career criminal his entire life. And the, what makes him most notable, uh, certainly in regards to the film, even going so far as its title is that he didn't stop being a career criminal when he should have outgrown it um and when he didn't need to anymore that's the other thing like he had he was a, a bank robber and he had a lot of money uh he was very successful at it and he probably didn't need to keep doing it but the argument that the film makes is that that it was the th- that it was kind of a thrill for him. Like this is this, I- the idea that he re he found something he really likes doing. And what I like, a- one thing I like about the movie is that he would get arrested, go to jail, break out of jail, and then yeah. probably be out for a while, then get arrested again. Then he goes back in. Um, and what I like is that it- it's as though he is playing a game that he loves and that he's pretty good at, but sometimes he loses And goes to jail. But that's part of the game too. And now the game is different. Now the game is, can I break out? Oh, I can. All right, (laughs) great. Uh, And then the game is, let's figure out how to rob this bank. Let's figure out how to do that. Like, it's all, not to imply he doesn't take life seriously. He does. Yeah. But in the same way that they say in life, you find what invigorates you. You find what you love and pursue that and there will be a certain degree of joy in your life uh, for the most part Um, to such an extent where when I taught this college class last semester and I was getting paid fairly good money uh to just teach and to just talk about movies and watch movies and discuss movies i felt like th- this feels like i'm getting away with something <laughs> um and now in his case he actually is getting away with something Most in sometimes. some cases um <clears throat> and so there there has to be despite the character being older there has to be a certain breeziness to him and i think robert redford it's just I've always, th- I've always thought he's a very, very good actor. And what I like is that he doesn't try to imbue the character with more than is there. He doesn't, he doesn't add a brooding element. He just sees that this is a guy who he's probably he's done some things that he has regretted. But for the most part, he just has to keep moving forward. And I think it's a, a really great performance. I think the performances all around are wonderful. It's, all, it's delightful to see Tom Waits in that role. What's and, your
0: favorite Tom Waits line?
1: It's you know. Anyway, that's why I hate Christmas. <laughs> See,
0: I think that's
1: second place okay. to my
0: favorite, which is you know I never finished medical
1: school. <laughs> yeah, I, that's fun because it's such a it's such a delightful throwaway. Yeah, um, the, un, undoubtedly, I think the story that he tells and I think that medical school, medical school line those are him. Yeah, I'm sure David yeah. Lauer was just like all right, say some Tom Waits shit. Uh, <clears throat> but he's great. I think Sissy Spacek is a lot of fun. Yeah not a lot of fun pardon me but i think she's very good and yeah. a, a really a grounding influence but still she doesn't feel like a device she feels like a full-fledged character yeah. to me
2: oh, as, scene she, of, with the as bracelet. she
1: often does the scene with the bracelet at the mall oh i love oh, it so great um and i think casey affleck does a, a good job as well yeah. and and it's it's just it's I, the film in many ways is light as a feather but i still really enjoyed it um we talked a bit about welcome tomorrow and being about Robert
0: Zemeckis. To what extent is the old man, the gun about Robert Redford? Probably quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not just the idea of a guy who just can't stop doing what he loves doing like Redford. Um, and then, you know, you know, (coughs) maybe retires in the end, just like Robert Redford is maybe retiring. Yeah. Uh, but also it uses footage from, um, like one of his old movies. I can't remember which one. Um, and, I didn't even catch this, but the movie's titles are in the same font as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Oh, neat. Uh, yeah. I did not know yeah. that, but all right. Um, moving on to Sarah Colangelo's, the kindergarten teacher, which is a remake of a 2014 Israeli movie that I never saw. Uh, but it, this one stars Maggie Gyllenhaal as a kindergarten teacher, not just mm-hmm. tape title, uh, who
1: has, <laughs> she's also a member.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, She has a kid in her class that she becomes convinced is a savant and starts taking more and more ill-advised and extreme measures to try and get this kid's poetry Hmm. out into the world. And uh, I wish I liked it more, but I think in a way... It, if this is possible, Sarah Colangelo maybe has too much sympathy for Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. Hmm. Like I think the movie would have played better as more of a dark comedy, Yeah, which it has elements of that. There are parts of you're like, what are you doing? Um, but I feel like Sarah Colangelo isn't fully willing to let us just laugh at mm-hmm. how uncomfortable <coughs> these situations are. It it also has the very. I won't give it away, but the very ending. I think backs up what I'm saying that I think Sarah Sarah Colangelo, at least the screenwriters, think that Maggie Gyllenhaal is more right than she probably actually is. Yeah. Uh, And also, I feel like season two of The Deuce, I really didn't like. (laughs) Okay. And his maybe I maybe didn't like it so much that it's kind of soured me on Maggie Gyllenhaal, whom I used to love. Interesting. Um, but her character in season two of the deuce is my least favorite character going from being my favorite character in the first season. But is that because of her performance
1: character. or just the character?
0: I feel like I'm picking up now on, and maybe it's just, maybe it's not even that I didn't like the deuce. Maybe it's just watching some, watching nine hours of someone perform. Yeah. You start to realize what's, what are just their crutches or their yeah. crutches is a bad word, but their ticks as an act, yeah, you know,
1: their go-tos. Um, goes to, pardon Uh, me.
0: Yeah. I mean, you and I talked about, this is going back like 10 years, um, how Titus Welver's impression of Robert Duvall, like made you realize, oh yeah, there are these things that Robert Duvall does all the time that I hadn't really thought about. Oh yeah. Um, and maybe it's just, I've just watched so much Maggie Jo Hall over the past year and a half or so, um, that I'm starting to, to, to pick up on her, her her tricks. (coughs) Uh, anyway, Moving on to another movie I didn't like very much, which is Felix Ben Groningen's Beautiful Boy, um, okay. which is based on a true story of uh, a... Uh, well, I guess it's mostly from the father's point of view. Steve Carell plays a um, journalist uh, whose son develops an addiction to crystal meth, and over the course of years... Just cycles back and forth through sobriety Mm -hmm. and and relapse and sobriety and relapse. Um, And uh, I feel like the movie, I I guess it should be more upsetting because it's and it's based on two memoirs. The the father's memoir and the son's memoir. Interesting. Interesting in theory, it clearly favors the father's. Okay, I wish that it were more balanced, (coughs) but I, I feel like it just uses. It uses the son's memoir maybe to fill in some blanks the father wasn't present for, but it doesn't really get into his psychology as much as it ought right. to. If it wants to be a movie about an addict, show us more than... So many movies about troubled kids, even though this kid ends up being like 20-something by the end. Um, and this I mean Not, not that... Okay, 8th grade, not that Kayla is necessarily troubled, but so many movies about parents and kids just naturally adopt the parents point of view. Yeah. And it always drives me nuts. Yeah.
1: Um, eighth grade does not.
0: Uh, eighth grade very much does not. Yeah. Uh, and, um, with, uh, speaking of Timothy Chalamet, who's in beautiful boy, miss Stevens is a movie that does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this movie, I think it just can't help but be from the father's point of view, which is especially, uh, we talked about how, Land of Steady Habits, actually, uh, you really elucidated how well it uses the privilege of the character Mm -hmm. to comment on it. Yeah. You know, and and to inform the character. Here, it seems like... I don't understand. Felix van Gorningen's like, shot selections and framing can't help but constantly underline the privilege of this family, which only undercuts things. Mm -hmm. uh, Like, uh, it, it, it seems like well, yeah, you can afford to cough up $20,000 to send your kid to rehab in Arizona, and the movie doesn't seem to be about that in any way. It just takes it as like, yeah, that's what you do. Your son's an addict. You send him to Arizona right. with your $20,000 yeah. <laughs> for a month. Um, it, it it doesn't really... Uh, I, I don't really understand um, the choices, especially since the last... The last few Van Groningen film that I saw, I didn't see Belgica, but um, the Broken Circle Breakdown is, uh, I think, much more aware of its characters' uh,
1: economic status. Well, and you know, I it, that kind of thing again. Having not seen the film, sorry, um, I don't think it's necessarily a, you know it, it's necessarily a bad thing to show like. Unfortunate stuff happening to f- fortunate people. Um, sure, I'm not saying you, you know, shouldn't feel bad about uh, the kid, but I'm saying it's sort of like
0: we've talked about it in this is forty when it's when they're like, oh, right. we have financial problems. Let's go away right. for a weekend to wine country to talk about them. See, like, it's, it's that, that kind of cluelessness.
1: But but is there uh, is there a moment in in Beautiful Boy where they are stressing over money? Uh, no, no, you're right. But okay. I just
0: uh, I I just felt like maybe Felix van Groningen was just so taken by this sort of Bay area real estate mm-hmm. <laughs> of the, of their nice like house on a hill that it's like, could you, like,
1: could you stop making everything seem so safe? It's not supposed to be, but it feels so safe. Okay. That see, that. that makes, that makes more sense to me because, uh, bringing up, uh, to bring up Robert Redford's directorial efforts, you know, uh, ordinary people. I know a lot of people, said like said well they're not you know they're not ordinary look how much money they have and like and i actually have seen reviews say it's like well it's hard to feel bad for this family it's like oh is it because i'm pretty sure they all kind of hate each other they just lost one kid another kid tried to kill himself like and that's not a film that actually feels particularly safe because yeah within that their rather large house it's still extremely lonely. Yeah. I think Uh, he's much more aware of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Although I
0: think as I get older, ordinary people maybe has more problems in other areas when it comes to like therapy. I think, um, those scenes feel a little stagey. Oh,
1: undoubtedly. Yes. Um,
0: I don't very know, the way, the way very that, well
1: executed, but yes, it,
0: it yeah. definitely feels the way that going to therapy changed the way I view therapy in movies. Even The Sopranos, the greatest TV show of all time, which I'm clearly yeah. rewatching because I've referenced it like three times on this episode. Yeah, um, even that I keep being like, "Oh, Dr. Melfi. that's not that's <laughs> yeah. how this is supposed to go." Uh, yeah,
1: it's yeah. it's that old. Uh, I've quoted it before, but that uh, that Todd Glass thing where he was talking about how much he's bothered by like angry comedians. He's like. I know you didn't actually react this way. It's like, I know that you're, you're like this cause we're watching. And it's this kind of thing that like, it's like, if you were an actual therapist, if this were a therapy session with no cameras in the room, your uh, advice would not be quite so dynamic. Yeah. Uh, it would be much more run of the mill and much more easy network, at least easier to implement.
0: Uh, all right. Next up for me is a movie that comes up this weekend and it's, uh, Adam Robitel's escape room, which is so much fun. Okay. I <laughs> really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, this is actually, it's, um, this is going to come full circle. Well, this isn't my last movie. I've got one more after this, but going all the way back to the first movie, I talked Wait, about, you okay. have one more after this. Yeah.
1: Oh, we did not time this out. Um, well, you have
0: more than I have one, two movies. Uh, all right. So you do one other one. You do one. It okay. that makes sense. That works out. Um, so going back to Aquaman, which we started three hours ago with, um, once again, movies just can't stop dunking on Tomb Raider <laughs> from last year <laughs> because this movie has a scene that if it weren't so good, would we be like, we just saw this, which is literally the female lead rearranging puzzle pieces on a wall mm-hmm. as the floor beneath her and her compatriots is falling away piece by piece yeah. it's the exact same scene that's in tomb raider except it's so much better here yeah that i didn't mind
1: uh oh man <laughs> um you you mentioned the film uh earlier and uh or later <coughs> yeah or later pardon me uh and it's something that i was not when I first saw like a trailer for him, I was like, yeah, who gives, you know, it's, it's a, Oh, a horror movie in January. That's going to be great. Uh, I know, but at the, but at the same time, like you, you've sold me on it.
0: Yeah. And, and cause I, what's really great about it is that it really, the premise is schlocky. It's very house on hundred hill. Like six strangers all get invited to participate in this escape room. If they win, they win $10,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really there are more nefarious things at play and yeah. the escape room. The, the consequences are real. Yeah. Uh, characters get, killed off as the escape rooms go on. Um, But in order to make this sort of thing work, the movie actually has to be as smart as an escape room and as inventive as an escape room made by someone with a ton of money and resources. Yeah. And it, this movie doesn't disappoint. It keeps being inventive. The games and puzzles themselves are the kind of thing where you're figuring them out along with the characters. They're really, really smart and they are, in a way kind of like the things that you would actually find in in escape rooms obviously with a little bit more of physical components at certain at certain points because it's a life or death here um but uh the movie is just smart enough and fun enough there's some you know it's not without its dumb stuff there's the the scene um the scene where everyone uh discovers what they have in common, all these strangers, which mm-hmm. is, uh, I wrote this in my review, but speaking of uh, surprisingly decent January horror releases, uh, Final Destination 2, like 16 years ago, <laughs> okay. parodies that scene. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've seen Final Destination 2. I have not. I've only uh, seen the first one. Okay, so there's a scene in the second one where all in the, the surviving people are all in a car, and they're all realizing that they all have some connection to events from the first movie. Mm-hmm. It's so stupid that the movie is like, clearly like, being tongue in cheek about this. And then, so to do it, I don't know. We, we've seen the scene and we've seen it yeah. parodied. Uh, there's also some really on the one hand, really obligatory sequel setup. Mm-hmm. on The other hand, I like the movie so much that I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Es- escape room, uh, really a big surprise, uh, for me. And if you're looking for a change of pace from the movies, if you've been watching the kind of movies that I've been watching, yeah. escape room, uh, is, well,
1: it's escapist. Isn't it? Uh, if we you. believe in that. All right. Uh, what's next for you? Next for me is a, a rewatch. Jen was watching it the other day, and I walked in about 10 minutes in and watched all the way. It's a film that you do not care for. Okay. Um, it is The Prestige, mm. which, David, I love it. Every time I see it, I notice something new. And here's what I like about it <clears throat> there is a way that you have described Christopher Nolan. Okay. All right. Do you do you know what no, I'm talking I don't about? No. Which is he's a Steven Spielberg who thinks oh, he's a Stanley Kubrick. No, I said he's a James Cameron. Who he's thinks a James Cameron. Cam- okay. Uh, Either yeah. way, different. James uh,
0: Cameron and Steven Spielberg are very different directors. Yes. To me. Yes. They're both obviously very popular. Yeah. But they're okay. Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, that might work even better. Okay. Um. The Prestige is such a fascinating film. I was talking. Uh, with a friend about it, that like after Batman begins, it's always interesting to see what a director does after they make the moneymaker. Yeah. You know, um, like, especially if it's a Batman movie, you know, like Tim Burton, the movie he made after Batman was Edward Scissorhands. Like, it's just, and you're like, okay, it's probably their most personal. Right. Okay. And I do think that The Prestige is probably his most personal film because it, he's making a movie about artists and it's these two guys that are in this constant competition and it's essentially craft versus showmanship. And what I like is that. <clears throat> he gives both of them their day in court. And what's interesting is as they compete with each other, they both get better at what the other one is good at. You know, uh, you see Christian Bale do these great tricks, but he has no flair. But then, and then you see, uh, Hugh Jackman, he has tons of showmanship and his tricks are fine. But as they, as they go back and forth and there's this constant tension, Bale becomes, uh, a great showman and then Jackman uh, ups his game quite a bit. And it's this idea that like you need, you absolutely need both. And I feel like it's, it's Nolan who made following and memento and insomnia and then suddenly makes Batman begins, which I find myself wondering if he felt almost bad about uh, that, that like, d- have I sold out? Is it all showmanship now? Is it all like this big budget stuff? And I think the prestige is him trying to figure it out for himself. Mm. Who am I going to be? Oh, I, I'm going to be both, uh, because that is how I can get better in both, in, in both regards. I can be a better craftsman, uh, if I'm, if I recognize that the audience is watching, you know, and I can regard them a little bit more. And what I like is that by the end of the film, because it's such a standard, It's such a standard film nerd, film snob attitude that like, well, craft is more important than showmanship. Substance is more important than style. And as time goes on, you realize like, no, you need, you absolutely need both. And so what I like about the end of the film is that it's not that Hugh Jackman's character is the villain, but he seems, Christian Bale's character seems like the purer of the two. And then when you see Jackman, the idea of taking the bow, the idea of of getting the glory, you think that's what it's all about for him, but he says, no, it's not about that. It's about seeing their faces. It's about this moment that you actually transported them to something to make them believe something that they knew isn't that they know isn't true. And that's the you know that's what it means to regard the audience, and so like this film is just such a fascinating, not even just a personal statement; it is a personal struggle, mm. and it's interesting that the movie that he made after is, I mean, was The Dark Knight, which I think from a technological standpoint, like you can see the stru- you can see the prestige struggle within The Dark Knight right. thematically, and from a spectacle standpoint, and so like the prestige it has. Tons of logical flaws. Why didn't Uh, you check the knot? I know, I know. (laughs) Did you just check the knot? That's your... It's weird that you latch on to that. You're not usually that kind of stickler.
0: No, but I... I, If I don't like a movie, then I'm more willing to
1: pick nits. Yeah. And and I do think that it's just... It's such an interesting choice to make this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, if if it were pure theme, I wouldn't be that interested. But... um, but i think the performances are great and i think he does a a good job with the with the visual aesthetic and it's just a it it might be my favorite of his films i think it's very likely that it is
0: uh all right my final uh movie is jacques Rivette's 1966 la
1: religieuse which just means the nun um anna oh that's that uh, in the conjuring universe right uh yeah
0: <laughs> le um, conjuring <laughs> um, anna karina stars it's based on a um novel published in the seventeen nineties um she stars as a starting a she's a sixteen year old girl at the beginning who is sent away forced to go to become a nun by her parents because they um, well they claim that it's because they can't afford a dowry to marry her off this is the only thing they can afford to do with her uh, we later learn this is more complex than that but she <coughs> basically the movies takes place over the next like four or five years of her life of being a nun which she never wanted to be and you see her struggle with um, basically most of it is about her relationship, not to other nuns, but to different mothers superior. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one that she likes, the second one that she hates, the third one, uh, has some secrets of her own. And then she's also in contact with the, the, the priests and archbishops who oversee, um, the local parishes and stuff. So <clears throat> I think the easiest sort of point of reference in some ways is you can see this as being, in a way of a piece with movies like cool hand Luke and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. It is about an anti-authoritarian figure within, uh, an institution that, uh, is working to grind her down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, it's, it's, not actually as, uh, it can't actually be summed up that simply, but that's a good way to sort of start to think of it. Um, <clears throat> but it actually, uh, I think goes deeper into suggesting that her, self-doubt and her honesty about her self-doubt about whether or not she should be a nun actually makes her a better nun in a way Mm -hmm. than the nuns who are so sure of their calling and so confident in their piety that they become sanctimonious. Yeah. Um, and you see that with person after person that she interacts with, um, Uh, and eventually people who clearly are not devout are just this is where they have found their little corner of the world that they can run. Yeah. How they see it. Um, and she's spends the entire movie butting up against authority figures that are either outwardly uh, antagonistic to her or that are dishonest with her or that repeatedly let her down. Um, so yeah, it's like a two hour and 20 minute movie that is a <laughs> real bummer in many ways, but it is also truly beautiful. It's a great performance by Anna Karina. Really great. Um, uh, there's also, I think a lot of, um, uh, this is, this is a new 4k restoration. I didn't see the 4k restoration. I just got a screening link, which was in HD, I guess. Um, uh, but there's, um, the sound is also really important here. There's a lot of use of, um, uh, the sounds of birds. There's a, there's a, like at the first convent she is sent to, there's a particular kind of bird that is kind of annoying. It almost sounds like there's a mouse in the walls type (laughs) of like annoying. And then she eventually finally gets transferred to another convent. We think, Oh, she's finally going to be happy. And the birds are, uh, much more beautiful cooing outside the windows. And then as, she realizes what's really going on at this convent, the old type of bird starts to show up on the soundtrack. Uh, uh, again, it's um uh it's very clever. Jacques Ravetta is always uh was always could always be very um uh instinctive and te- and was able to think of cinema as in a in a hole like that. Not, you know, um it, it feels both uh perfectly Conceived, while, and also it feels uh, almost dashed off mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Not dashed off, but almost like it came naturally to him. Uh, really great movie, and again, really great performance by Anna Karina.
1: Okay. My last film, and then I've got some TV to talk about, um, is Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favorite. Um, oh, good. Which I, I'll say this. When I watched it i thought like that was really that was really great i really liked it um but i think i also i was like i didn't like it as much as killing of a sacred deer i didn't like it as much as the lobster um which is probably still true but the more i think about the movie uh thematically i mean the the visual quality uh the performances like that's is that's obvious. Um, but the more I think about the thematics, I thought like, oh man, what a, what a fascinating, what a fascinating way to explore some of these, these themes, the idea that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a love triangle, except one of them is not really loving at all. And it's this idea that I mean it uses royalty and in the in this case it's a queen and a queen can literally get whatever she wants. Mm-hmm. So now the question is what does she want? Does she want someone that will do everything she wants at all times or does she want someone that will occasionally assert themselves and and tell her the truth. Yeah, more honest. Yeah. But the, the, but then of course there's the there's there's the the flip side where the person that is telling the honest truth by having unrestricted access, she starts to actually become manipulative, maybe sometimes without even realizing it and kind of takes the queen for granted. And then when she gets competition, it's like, okay, now I sort of need to examine what I get out of this. Do I just want the favor or do I want something deeper? Mm -hmm. And I think she realizes she does want the deeper thing. Whereas, you know, the, we have tremendous sympathy for the Abigail character uh, to get out of her situation. But you realize that she is someone who just because life has required it of her, she has to like, she can turn off and on her emotions to get what she needs and what she wants. Uh, and so it's this, it's this fascinating meditation on like what we want versus what we need, how easy it is to mistake those things and, and how often in the midst of very childish spite, when what we want overtakes what we need, uh, we can do irreparable damage, uh, to other people and uh, ultimately to ourselves. Like it's worth noting that, that when the Sarah character is essentially, uh, sent away at least the first time, um, when we cut to the queen, we see that now she is in terrible physical shape. Like not that I don't think she's necessarily had a stroke, but she's got some kind of palsy going on Mm -hmm. and you feel like, yeah, it's probably because no one told her. No, no one said you can't eat this stuff. You can't drink this stuff. And she was just perpetually indulged and it made her worse. And Mm. it's just such a, it's such a wonderful in the midst of this very funny, very ornate, very disturbing story that there's this universal theme that is so beautiful and so heartbreaking. Uh, and so like the more I thought of that, the more I thought like, man, this movie is like Yorgos Lanthimos does this, amazing thing where he he can have this very detached style, uh, that often gets you laughing in a very dark way. And at the core of it has this tremendously humanistic, uh, attitude that explores even the most mundane and run of the mill everyday relationships we have with people. And I was a little bit worried because he hadn't, because he didn't write the script and I thought he was, a, he, I think mean, he's a marvelous writer, but, and I thought like, well, okay, is he still going to come through if he hasn't written the script? Uh, the answer is a very definitive yes. Um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I just think it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a really marvelous film. And the more, and the more I talk about it, even now just verbalizing it, like it wasn't in my top 10 and now it is like, as I yeah. talk about it,
0: I think it's still hovering around honorable mention territory for me, but I still have some things to, to watch. Um, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I like, but I like the dance. Yeah. I like most of the things that Nicholas Holt says. He's great. Yeah. Um, I also like the fastest duck in town. Yeah. <laughs> which is how that <coughs> animal is credited in the credits, by the way. I don't know. Oh, if you that's, saw that. I did not see that. That's
1: <laughs> fine. And I, uh, and I think I've determined that if ever somebody wanted to make uh, a movie adaptation of the aristocrats joke, <laughs> I think Yorgos Lanthimos is the guy (laughs) to do it. Um, So, yeah, I I really loved it. Let's, uh, well, you talk about TV. Okay. So, uh, I rewatched season five of Silicon Valley. And one thing that I, I, I mean, it's not. At all strange to realize that the show is so much about maneuvering, but when you think about stuff like Deadwood or Game of Thrones, which is all about like people trying to set themselves up in just the right, right. way, season f- i mean the, the whole series of Silicon Valley is that, but season five, especially when you just realize that every single person has their own agenda and is jockeying for position, Mm -hmm. whether it be not just Richard and Gavin, but like Hoover and, uh, Oh shoot. I forget the name of the, of the, the manufacturer in China. Like, Oh yeah. And, and even Jin Yang, you know, yeah. Um, Jin Yang is so great, man. man. He's marvelous. And just, and, and, uh, Laurie bream you know mm-hmm. like everybody is constantly trying to to better themselves and it's it really is just like this complex chess match and so like the the moment of triumph of richard at the end of the season it might as well be something out of these dramatic these one hour dramatic hbo yeah. shows and it's every bit as satisfying as as that. And uh yeah, it's the one person who doesn't have an agenda is Jared, um, who is just committed to Richard to such an extent. I forgot about the line where he and Dinesh are looking for the this character Colin in like a campground. And Dinesh is saying like Colin, he's like yelling and a guy says like, hey, shut up. And Jared goes he goes how would you like to die today motherfucker (laughs) and it's oh man it's hilarious um so yeah i i really uh i really enjoy that um i watched i caught up watched seasons two and three of rick and morty oh uh, a show that i stopped watching because i found it tremendously depressing um still do but the creativity is undeniable it's just it's there's such an, there's an exhilaration to it like clearly everybody involved is enjoying every moment of the of the show um the episode regarding pickle rick is delightful in a lot of ways yeah. and I only know that as a cultural <laughs> reference oh you haven't so seen the episode I've never watched Rick and Morty I might have seen one once after. oh for some reason I thought maybe I'm thinking of somebody else but like I thought you'd you had watched uh, like all of it I no. thought oh okay oh I think you I think, so you, I think you'd really like remember. it okay um it's it definitely I would say in many ways is kind of the successor uh to uh, Futurama oh. um there's tremendously interesting sci-fi stuff going on um <laughs> and so it's i'm I'm glad that i did watch it but it's it's a it's a show that definitely has a certain nihilistic streak to it that um i was not ready for when i watched it but i'm glad that i picked it back up and and i'm enjoying it and and i laughed out loud at quite a few things (laughs) lastly i watched several seasons of the amazing race um, seasons that I had not seen before Jen and I were just looking to like watch stuff together when we both were sick and had colds and we were not really in the mood for any heavy uh, Oscar screener stuff so we watched seasons like 15 and 13 it just kind of skipped around uh-huh. and then finally we thought like you know what? what the hell let's just go back to season three because we had watched one and two a while ago and watching season three how far back do you go
0: I I have watched season 1, but I don't think I actually started watching it regularly until like 7 maybe. Okay.
1: It is so fascinating to watch early seasons. Yeah. Knowing what it is now. Yeah. Um because <coughs> there's such an emphasis on the travel part, which is understandable uh in the early season, but when I say travel, I don't mean landscapes. I mean the actual logistics of travel. We spend so much time in airports and I think that, uh, and you can literally see like six episodes, maybe seven episodes into this season. You can actually see the producers realizing, Oh, this is best when all the teams are together oh, because right, yeah, yeah. what, cause they'll, they'll, they do crazy things where <clears throat> where the teams like let's say there are nine teams or let's we'll say 10 teams it'll be like okay these four teams are kind of bunched up and then three hours behind them is these these four teams and then three hours behind them are these two teams so like there's there's not a whole lot of like the the scrambling that you find you know certainly at a at a at a roadblock or a detour um it's just so much about like there's a moment they're in marrakesh and so it's like all right let's go get our flights what every flight out of marrakesh regardless of destination is booked what what so what do we do Uh and some people like wait to get standby some people take a train to nearby casablanca where there are more flights going out Hardly a guarantee that they're going to get where they need to go. It's nuts. Crazy to think that they would. Yeah. Oh yeah. They would never do that now ever. Yeah. Like now it's like, all right, there are two flights. They're 45 minutes apart. You'll get on one of those. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, there's so much more emphasis now on the tasks, uh, as opposed to, to then where it was, it was all about like logistics, which is interesting, but it does get tiresome. Actually. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished that, that the show caught on as much as it did. Cause
0: yeah, because well, I, my favorite, I mean, cause I've only seen the first season uh, and uh, like I said, until seven, but it cracks me up to think that the first season that the, the second place team wasn't even in the same country as the first place team. Yeah. They, they figured that out at least. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. But what's interesting is cause Jen and I did watch season two. It was a while ago, several years ago, but I don't remember having the thought that I've had with season three, like with these teams so far apart that it just seems not merely anticlimactic, but it doesn't even seem like it seems like a race, but not a competition. Right. You know? And I think the more they realize like, Oh no, we need to put all these people together so that they're all running around at the same time in the same physical space. Like there's a moment where there's an actual race to, for between the two last teams, there's a race to the mat, uh, And it's the first time it's happened all season, and I found myself being like, "Oh my gosh, who's going to make it?" And it's like, "Oh yes, I think I think everybody thought that." And I and the producers, you can see them, you can literally see them learning as they go. Yeah. And and it's uh, it's been very interesting. When's it coming uh, back? May. I looked it up. Comes back in May. Okay. Why don't we get two a year anymore? Like we used to. I I don't know. I was thinking about that. Like. How is it that Survivor is still going strong, whereas Amazing Race is like perpetually on the bubble? It shows it like soon they're just going to be airing it like Sunday afternoons or something like that. Yeah. Um, I know, I, Yeah, I guess Emmys <coughs> don't count for that much. Uh, no, yeah. Like it won the very first like competitive reality show, it in. won like the first 15
0: or yeah. something. It was like a long time before I think, like, was it, it was like either Project Runway or Top Chef, I yeah. think, like unseated it. But it was like, yeah, it won year after year after year yeah but i guess also survivor is one location
1: so it's probably cheaper oh undoubtedly yeah but at the same time like when you've got when you've got a a huge sponsor like travelocity like i feel like that probably shaves some of the costs off but i also i was talking with our friend uh rob Sesternino, who was on survivor a couple seasons um and does his own podcast and he said that like with something like survivor it's so personality based mm-hmm. yeah, amazing races too but like it's so personality based that every two or three years which is to say every five or six seasons you'll get like a new batch of personalities that somehow people just hear about it could be like oh i stopped watching survivor years ago and someone's like you need to come back for this guy okay and i feel like you don't get something like that with amazing race. I feel like I mentioned law and order earlier, like law and order. One episode is very similar to the next one season is very similar to the next. And with the amazing race, as much as I do love it, I do think that you don't, you're not going to see that much variance from one season to the next. Like if someone has fallen, if someone loses interest, there's nothing the show's going to do. That's going to bring them back. You know, it's just going to keep being the amazing race. I enjoy it and I enjoy the, the, the locations and the, and the tasks and stuff like that. But I could see it for some people becoming a bit repetitive.